Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. So the show that we're going to talk about today is near and dear to my heart for many reasons, but among the reasons why it matters a lot to me and why it's so important is that the first time I ever did Shrooms coincided with me getting this album when it was still a bootleg. So the first time you heard this show was also your first time on Shrooms? Yes. Okay, you hadn't heard it before. Yes, I hadn't heard it before. We're talking about Bob Dylan, the Royal Albert Hall concert, which of course it's not at the Royal Albert Hall. It's at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, although I don't know if I knew that at the time because it was called the Royal Albert Hall Show and there was this cool local record store where they had it on CD and the guy dubbed it on tape for because I couldn't afford the CD. The CD was, I think, $30. One of those, yeah. And he dubbed it on tape for $10. And this would have been 96, 97, so a couple of years before it officially came out yeah. as Bootleg Series Volume 4. Was he uh, Was he also your shroom dealer, or were these separate transactions? No. <laughs> separate transactions. <laughs> I uh, went to a local uh, state park that night with some friends. We were, we were camping. It was March, and there was still snow on the ground, and I did shrooms, and I can't remember if the acoustic side was also on there or not. All I know is that I, I for sure listened to the electric side. And there was much weeping during that. <laughs> it was. It remains the most powerful music experience I've ever had. Wow! In my life, it was um, a combination of the drugs and the music and the age I was. It was unbelievable. It, and it's definitely the greatest drug plus music experience I've ever had. Did you pick this specifically to go with the shrooms, or was it just that you had happened to buy it that day? Because it doesn't. It, it's not a psychedelic performance. I would say no. It's not like uh, listening to a dark 
star on your first shrooms experience, right? This is a, it's a curveball of a choice. I'm not sure how the shrooms came up. I don't know if I knew that was happening. Okay. All I know is that it presented the, it presented itself and I happened to have the tape on me. Yeah, it's not psychedelic, but it's extremely powerful music. Uh, and it's music that subsequently ended up being hugely foundational for me in terms of informing other things that I ended up liking. Nice. Of course. Which I think we all have those experiences when we're between the ages of 16 and 21. There's those things that you hear and you, for the rest of your life, you're just trying to find something that can replicate the feeling that you had when you heard that for the first time. You know, certain qualities of that. So I'm very excited about this. As you could tell, I'm going to be indulging in a lot of hyperbole, I'm sure, in this episode. So advance warning. Have you had any good, like, what's your best drug experience plus music? Do you have... (sighs) something like that i have such like a tame drug history that it's not i don't i don't really have an equivalent story my, my closest thing is that i got like absurdly drunk at a bob dylan show maybe five or six years ago it was actually that tour he did with wilco uh, oh. it was with wilco and my morning jacket and richard thompson so it was oh, like just dad rock to the extreme and in true dad rock fashion i drank too many uh high percentage ipas at the show <laughs> oh man yeah, dad uh, it's dad's night off it was I'm gonna have some ipas yeah it's gonna be crazy you know i was with you at a fish show mm-hmm. in allstate arena and i feel like you got pretty stoned at that show i did because there was this it was the, it was like a halloween show and there was a dude that was dressed up as mike ditka <laughs> who kept <laughs> handing us like his special his ditka weed yeah yeah it was like it was, it was really good shit because i mean as a chicagoan i could not turn down mike ditka offering me that's true a hit of I drugs mean, I, that would i would they would kick me out of the city and you know at first i thought it was a guy dressed up as mike ditka but it might very well have been <laughs> mike ditka you know for all we know well that's the thing i just got sleepy and didn't appreciate the set as much as i should have so that's why i don't have a lot of memorable drug experiences because i know that i will i will just get tired and distracted so a, f- a few beers is just about right for me and uh yeah when I, I did like i mean i had a great time at that bob dylan show and i seen him i don't know four or five times now and every time is kind of like hey it's cool to see bob dylan but i'm never like totally moved by it but this time i was like climbed my way from the seats onto the floor somehow illegally and got as close to the stage as i could and was like ah, bob dylan so you know it it helped but yeah probably not an advisable experience i got i remember i saw dylan in berkeley in 2002 which is i think the greatest concert i've ever seen in person by anyone. Wow. And it was at, it was at the uh, Greek Theater in Berkeley, which is a beautiful venue. And it was the tour where he was doing all these Warren Zevon songs because Warren had just announced that he had cancer and he ended up passing away the following year. And that was a show like where there was no security at all and just rampant drug use everywhere. So I had multiple things being thrown at me. And that was a lot of fun. That was a very chemically altered experience as well. It was it was awesome. So that was a great show. But, uh, you know, I mean, do we have to explain why Bob Dylan makes sense for us to do a curveball on? I feel like it's pretty self-evident, the connection that he has to the Grateful Dead. I feel like this is maybe the most logical curveball that we've done so far. Yeah, it's like less of a curveball and more of like a fastball with a little bit of late movements to it like it's not uh i I think it was you know so fish we also didn't have to push too hard other than 
you know, justifying it to the fish haters in the audience. Radiohead, we definitely had to kind of hammer at a square peg a little bit to justify it, but Bob and the Dead. Yeah, Bob and Jerry in particular were bros, you know, obviously there was the Dylan and the Dead tour from 87, but, you know, even before that. Yeah, and famously, Bob Dylan asked to join the Dead at one point, so that's... uh, as, as close a link as you could get. Have you heard this story? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, wasn't that around the time that they toured. I mean, that was like when Bob was super confused. Right. It was after they toured, I believe, like a couple years after. It was like he like dropped in on a show. I forget what year it was exactly. I want to say like 89 and had such a great time that the next day he wrote, he called up the dead and said, hey, I want to join you as your third guitarist. And they had a vote on it. And guess who said no? It had to be weird, right? No, it was Phil Esch. <laughs> it was Phil Esch? <laughs> of course it was Phil. Oh, the cop. The cop had to <laughs> had to shoot that down. I mean, with good reason. I mean, that would have been not a good idea. No, I no, think. no. It, I mean, there the was... shows that they did play together <laughs> were not probably a great idea. Uh, though, I mean, some good music came out of it, and the rehearsals are great. If you haven't heard the rehearsals out there, uh, they're on the archive. And even like Dylan and the Dead that, as an album... I kind of like that album. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it it's neither entity at their best, but weirdly, The Dead was really good at playing the Slow Train Coming songs. Yeah. I feel like on that record, like Gotta Serve Somebody and Slow Train sound really cool. Yeah. They've that got record. that 80s dead energy, I guess, in a, in, a, in a way that suits them, right? Absolutely. This show that we're going to be talking about today is interesting just because... It's really capturing Dylan at certainly one of his peaks and maybe his absolute peak, depending on your point of view. Certainly a peak in his career. And, you know, we talk about Dylan and the dead and their long history, and I think it's tempting sometimes to think of them being peers. And in many ways they are, but this show, I think, spotlights how, at least at this point, like how far Dylan was ahead of the Grateful Dead. I mean, we'll talk about this a bit in our episode. The Dead were basically just getting started in 1966, whereas Dylan, if he had like died in that motorcycle accident after this tour, he would already be a legend based on what he had done up to this point in 66. Of course, fortunately for all of us, he's carried on and had, you know, this iconic, illustrious career. But yeah, I mean, this is just an incredible period for Dylan and, and really for any artist. Right. Well, and Dylan was like a hero to the dead, given that he had sort of that half-decade start on the band, and that's why they covered, you know, an absurd amount of Dylan songs. I think there's at least a dozen, right, of Dylan covers in the in the Dead book, and Jerry covered a whole bunch more with his band, and, you know, they've played together, you know, even after Jerry's death, like, they've toured together in, you know, combo tours and things, and so it's, uh, the roots really run deep here. And Bob's covered The Grateful Dead, which we're going to talk about a little exactly, bit in our episode. Yeah. Which, you know, he doesn't really cover a ton of his, like, fellow 60s rockers. I mean, I think that also shows the the special place that the Grateful Dead have in Bob Dylan's heart. So, my God, I can't wait to just (laughs) shower compliments on this show uh, for the next few hours. So, uh, let's get into it.
jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. This is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. I'm Steve. And I'm Rob. Uh, you're, I thought you were Mitch. Are you Steve or are you Mitch? Mitch Hyden. <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. Just don't call me uh, late for the Curveball episode. Yeah, one of our listeners called me Mitch the other day on, on Twitter, which is kind of an awesome name, actually. I like the name Mitch. I wouldn't mind. Maybe that'll be my nickname. Maybe that can be one of our bits on this show and that, that we'll have to explain. It's only slightly confusing. A little bit. But then again, we're, we're, we're covering a show today with big Robert energy. I'm very excited about this because not only do we have a Bobby Zimmerman, but we also have a Robbie Robertson. That's two Roberts in one name. So I feel like this is my my home court, despite your shroom experience. Yeah, you should be uh, you should be Robbie Mitchum for this episode. The <laughs> IE. I was Robbie with a Y when I was a kid. I think this has come up before. But uh, Robbie Robertson, he can have the IE. I don't, I don't, I don't like the IE. I know. I was going to say that that's that's a real choice to go with the IE. It's very Canadian, uh, I think. That that's that's what I've always assumed. I don't know, man. It's uh, it's like Robbie Robertson had to write the weight to uh, <laughs> to justify the IE. I think in his name, and he had to play some of the greatest rock guitar of all time on this uh, Dylan 66 tour. That's my first heavy compliment of uh, this of this episode. I would say take a drink, but I don't want to kill any oh, of our man. listeners. It's going to you know, if you ever think that like we're too like that we're grouchy or that we're too negative, this this is going to clear your palate because <laughs> at least for me, it's just going to get kind of gross in this episode. It's going to be like public displays of affection times a hundred uh rob's probably gonna get grossed out at times gonna tell me to get a room i know well i have like like maybe three of the faintest criticisms ever which i am totally expecting steve to rip my head off for so oh man oh man we'll get to that i guess i mean okay so we're talking about bob dylan and the hawks may 17th 1966 this this episode's going up on the uh 55th anniversary of the show which is amazing that we're like this on the ball i think i said in the last episode that we were off by a day so i was wrong about being right (laughs) 
So I'm glad we screwed it up, or I screwed it up in some small way, at least. And this will also be the week of Bob's 80th birthday, correct? Which day is his actual birthday? Well, his birthday is May 24th, okay. so we're, we're a week out from that, assuming you're listening to this on the day that, we're, that we go live. Yeah, he turns 80 on May 24th, so Amazing. doing it for that occasion. As I said earlier, this show takes place at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, England, not the Royal Albert Hall, even though that is how the show was known for a long time. It's actually called that also, like when it was released as the Bootleg Series Volume 4. It's in quote marks, the Royal Albert Hall part, just to, you know, show that it's not actually at the Royal Albert Hall, but that's how this was known for a long time. They actually played at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, like a week later. Two shows a week later. Yeah, and they've released May now... May 26th and 27th. Yeah, they've released the real Royal Albert Hall show as well, just to make it even more confusing, which I have on uh, vinyl over here for some reason, even though it's like a B-plus version of this show, so... I don't know why yeah. I, I bought it, but uh, yeah, there it is. Well, and, and they also released the, the box set of Every all show. the 66 shows. Yeah. You can hear Manchester, you can hear everything else. We'll get into this in this episode. It, it's a little repetitive if you want to follow Dylan and the Hawks, because they're basically playing the same set list every night occasionally there's a there's a there's a difference but for the most part it's uh the same set and there's variations in performances but not dramatically so and i would say if you just want to hear one manchester is the one to go with i yeah. I, I feel pretty confident because of the sound quality performances and also because of the very famous dramatic moments that happen during this show which we'll we'll, we'll get into if you don't already know what they are I guess we won't spoil it for people. It's sort of like <laughs> saying before you watch The Godfather, we're not going to say right. what happens to Marlon Brando at the end of this movie. We're not going to tell you what Rosebud is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it feels a little bit like that, but you know, you you don't know. I mean, there were a couple comments that we saw on Twitter from people that I did get upset with one of our listeners because we posted this and he's like, ugh, I saw Dylan in 2013 and it wasn't very good. I'm like, okay, this is 1966 Bob Dylan, okay? Yeah. Don't ugh 1966 <laughs> Bob Dylan. That's where my hackles, you know, because again, I'm, I'm, this is my favorite live album of all time. Probably my favorite show played by anybody of all time. This means a lot to me. Bob Dylan's my favorite artist, my favorite singer, my favorite songwriter, my favorite persona, my favorite writer. You name it, he's my favorite. So I'm pretty protective. And this show in particular, like I said before, I mean, I would say that Bob Dylan has several peaks in his career. But if someone said that this is the pinnacle, like Dylan in 1966, I'd be hard pressed to argue with them i think it's like a common twitter prompt but the uh if you could time travel to any show which concert would you pick is this your automatic answer to that well it's interesting because on one hand yeah it seems like a no-brainer but then i wonder if i would get swept up in the drama and just be like so pissed off (laughs) at the audience for being so fucking stupid and booing bob dylan and the hawks yeah like you fucking morons (laughs) why would you boo to me like the greatest rock band of all time like i'm sorry like on the electric side they sound like the greatest rock band of all time to me and you fucking idiots are booing him (laughs) so i don't know i'm I'm just getting angry thinking about it right right so I, i wonder if i was there if it would prevent me from enjoying the music as much as i should yeah well that brings up a good question because like if people weren't booing him would this concert be so special would it have the energy that it does have and i bring that up because i would not describe this as my favorite live concert of all time i like it quite a bit but i think i like it 
almost equally for the music and equally for like the history and the context. Because I mean, this is like, it's almost rock history 101, this concert. We'll, t- we'll talk about why as we get into it. But just the, the whole story around it, the persona that Dylan had at this moment is so great. I actually, at one point, was going to write a book about how drugs influence music, like specific drugs. And I picked out a scene from No Direction Home, which was the Martin Scorsese documentary that is kind of Dylan's early performing years, but it is all leading up to this concert and this tour. Uh, And I picked a scene from this tour because Dylan very famously was whacked out on amphetamines as he was trucking around the UK and Europe. And there's a great scene of him like reading a shop sign and scrambling all the words. And it kind of sounds like he's doing like creating like surrealist poetry like Dylan of the era would, but it's also just like a sign that he was on enormous amounts of uppers (laughs) and just like free associating at all times and in a really bad state. But he made produced amazing music. I think he almost died because of it. There was the motorcycle accident or the drug use or the touring, but just all of these things happening at once and him being at a commercial peak him being considered the voice of a generation, him turning his back on the folk music. Like, it's just, it is so many storylines happening all at once that it's, like, irresistible for anybody who is drawn to classic rock to be, to have this historical document that you can listen to and experience all these things happening. Yeah, and to go back to something you said, like, would this have been as great if people didn't boo? Right. I mean, probably not, just because, and in this show in particular, they feed off the audience so much and there's so much like fuck you energy in the performance especially as we get toward the end of the show and again there's some very famous moments at the end of the show which we won't spoil for the people out there who don't know this show very well but i know for me like when i first heard this show what i responded to was what i felt was the the courage of the musicians i just had so much respect that they put themselves out there like this and they did what they believed in even though people didn't get it and also the fact that it was again fucking great like and people were booing them you know it wasn't like a terrible show that they just you know were misguided and they shouldn't have done what they did they were absolutely right you know and history has obviously vindicated dylan and the hawks and of course became the band so yeah lots to talk about but before we get to the show we have to do our mailbag segment and we got some good letters here lots of good letters thanks to everyone who's writing in everyone is way too nice (laughs) all of them are kind this is this first one i wanted to read because it's kind of a sweet letter comes from a guy named mark in niagara falls new york he says my wife was due to have our second child sex unknown on may 23rd we each preferred a particular boy's name that that the other was not thrilled about last thursday she was driving by herself in the country and texted me to say that she was listening to dick's picks three the help slip franklin's and that it put her in a mood mood is in quotation marks is that like a sexy mood or is that just like a good mood just or a, the philosophical just mood. Just a vibe, yeah. I think just like a vibe. She is very pregnant, so she probably was, it probably was not a sexy mood. She also said, oh, by the way, those cramps haven't gone away. And oh, by the way, how come we never talked about the name Franklin for a boy? Later that night, our son Franklin was born three weeks early. Everybody's home and healthy. His mother vetoed the middle name Sportatorium. <laughs> uh, it's too bad. This is a true story, but please don't tell our families... And then he adds, my hot Grateful Dead take is that Brent era is unquestionably the best time for Jack Straw. The Dick's Pick 21 version is the king of the series. 
Anyway, psyched for the Curveball app. I finally got around to watching the new Robbie Robertson documentary. This listen will be a good cleanse. Thanks, <laughs> Mark in Niagara Falls. Mark, congratulations yeah, on congrats. the birth of your son, Franklin. I guess by the time this goes up, he'll be about two weeks old or so. That's awesome. Con- yeah. Congratulations to you and your wife. Uh, can we take credit for this as a 36 from the vault <laughs> baby? The first one on record? Yeah, sure. I mean, I just have respect for anybody who can sneak a Grateful Dead name by their wife. Because uh, oh, that would never fly in this house. <laughs> I know, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can't even... I can't... I mean, and she's listening to Grateful Dead on her own, too. Which, yeah, I know my wife would never do. So... <laughs> Congratulations to you both. I'm sure everyone in 36 from the Vault Nation is uh, saluting you. So good job with Franklin. This next comment, this is not a question really. It comes from John in Sea Isle City, New Jersey. It's kind of a long letter, so I might trim this a little bit. Hi, guys. With sensitivity to appropriation and with rock and roll being an art form that is itself a pretty blatant example of appropriation, I was wondering if we could get your insights and thoughts as related to the inclusion of so many Chuck Berry songs in the Dix Picks volume. Uh, I'm not sure how songwriting credits were paid in the CD era. Maybe as industry commenters, you could shed light on that. If there is money in those sales and streams, doesn't it seem respectable to include the Chuck Berry songs? The Dead toured for years playing those songs and playing with it in an art form whose real pioneers saw almost no profits. Chuck Berry was a bridge between the Southern African-American roots that gave us rock and the white American and British rock artists who saw the first scale monetary rewards from it. Any credibility to the idea that including the Berry numbers was the right thing to do considering that legacy? So basically, he's asking, were the dead doing Chuck Berry a solid by putting so many triple berries on these <laughs> dicks picks? Because the idea being that Chuck was banking serious royalties from that yeah that's actually a very interesting point that i'd never considered my my guess is that they weren't that deliberate about it i don't know how you feel about this i wouldn't think that it was intentional but i do think it could have been a nice side effect i I actually looked this up just to see if chuck berry owned his catalog and it was a little bit unclear like when he died he owned a lot of publishing rights but i think it, it, it said on billboard that it was like his post peak publishing so there's probably some old white man and his descendants uh, at chess records that owns the rights to the promised land and johnny be good and all that stuff but i wouldn't put it past the dead they did you know some good charitable things uh for fellow artists and maybe uh at somewhere along the line if that money got kicked down to chuck who obviously outlived jerry by a couple decades so he would still be cashing the checks himself but they this billboard article i found said that chuck berry had quite the estate that he handed down to his descendants when he died so yeah i, I was gonna say story. i feel like i feel like chuck berry is an example of someone who probably did okay yeah in, in the long run obviously a lot of other artists got screwed but i think chuck did okay i do like the idea of chuck just like you know peeping out the next like the latest dicks picks and being like <laughs> yes <laughs> three <laughs> ka-ching take it to the bank baby <laughs> it's like because even Chuck Berry, I wonder, you know, he's probably like, wow, these guys love me. Yeah. These guys can't get enough of me. <laughs> I'm waiting for Dick's Picks 23, baby. Come on. 
paycheck. Yeah, keep them coming. Maybe that's why he has so much money. Maybe it is all that Dick's Picks money. Maybe. You know? I mean, I can't. Maybe that's a big chunk. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people cover Chuck Berry, but nobody covered him as often. No, not as <laughs> and, often. And released as many shows where they covered him as the dead. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, not an insignificant part of his portfolio, I'm sure. No. The Grateful Dead millions in, in the Chuck Berry coffers. Our last letter comes from Charlie in Philadelphia. Yeah. This is actually a... This is like a Dylan and Dead themed question, so this is a good segue. Maybe I'll read this one since... Uh, you yeah, can, you go ahead. I see you've got some good answers here, which I do not have good thought an- out answers for. So, uh, yeah, Charlie McGeehan from Philadelphia, who interacts with us frequently on Twitter. Thanks, Charlie. It's good to hear from you in the mailbag. He has a few Dylan and the Dead questions because he says, thanks for making this podcast. I've learned a lot about the dead, and I'm excited for y'all to dive into a Dylan show I've listened to a million times. So he's got uh, like lightning round Dylan and the Dead questions here, which I'm going to... I'm going to feed to Steve. Best dead version of a Bob Dylan song. Y'all touched on this a bit, but I could hear some more thoughts. So this is interesting because I feel like in The Grateful Dead, like Bob sings a lot of the Dylan covers, especially as they move into the 80s and 90s. And I prefer Jerry Garcia singing Bob Dylan songs. I think I said this in our Dick's Picks 21 episode that Jerry Garcia is my favorite interpreter of Bob Dylan songs. I, I think he was a legitimate fan. And he sang the songs beautifully and also found really cool ways to get his guitar in there. You know, like, it's all over now, Baby Blue, I think. In terms of the Grateful Dead, I always love them playing, especially when it kind of comes at the end of a set. I feel like they would do that in the 80s. Yeah, as an encore a lot. But I'm going to cheat here a little bit because I feel like Jerry actually really blossomed with Dylan Covers in the Jerry Garcia band. I mean, that's where he really did, I think, some great covers... I think of like the Positively 4th Street cover from like the Nicky Hopkins era, which is totally awesome. And I love that era of the Jerry Garcia band. around that same time too which was really great (laughs) of course tangled up in blue was the song that he ended most shows with with jgb which is really great i'm also a big fan of uh senor which i I don't think he did all that often senor tales of yankee power which is a song from street legal the jerry garcia band version of, of that is beautiful that would be my answers to that question i also like baby blue the best probably for the dead but i also like their quinn the eskimo i think that's a that's a pretty fun song. oh yeah uh, good call hear. a slightly more obscure one i guess though other bands had had hits with it basement tapes dylan is seems just really well suited to 
the Grateful Dead and their ramshackle take on the American roots. So uh, it's surprising maybe that they didn't do more, but they tend to lean towards the Highway 61, bringing it all back home, blonde on blonde run. Uh, as we're going to talk about later, I think six of the songs on this set they have, <laughs> they would cover. So like fully a third of the songs uh, in, in this particular show were in the Dead's repertoire. We should do a shout out too, to again, to Dick's Picks 21, that She Belongs to Me. From yeah, there, it was great. Which they didn't do very often, but that was that's a beautiful really good, yeah. version of that. All right, so here's uh, here's Charlie's second question. He says, the flip side of the other one, worst dead version of a Dillard song. This might be seen as a terrible take, but I have a hard time with Bobby's vocals on Desolation Row. My favorite version is this Live 66 one, and I just love how rough around the edges Dylan's performance is. Bobby's vocals are just too clean for me on that one. And I, I think I'm with Charlie because Desolation Row is a really long song. And anybody but Dylan singing it, it sounds like somebody's just like reading it off a teleprompter, which is kind of the uh, what I get <laughs> right. from from the wear versions. Yeah, and the thing with Desolation Row too, I feel like the harmonica solos on that song are are so crucial to me. I love the Highway 61 version. We'll talk about the one on this May 17th show uh, here in a bit. Yeah, I'm not huge on the Dead's Desolation Row. I'd also say, like, I'm not big on their Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues Again cover either. Like, it just feels like a little slack to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Dylan played that song live until, like, Rolling Thunder. Hmm. Which, you know, he didn't tour all that much after this, uh, you know, the 66 tour. I mean, he took an eight-year break, and then he had the tour with the band in 74, which was like a greatest hits tour. And then Rolling Thunder was kind of like the first tour that he did where the set list was like a little more open. So he actually played like a lot of Blonde on Blonde songs for the first time 10 years later. Some, in some cases, like 20 years later, which is kind of mind-blowing considering how iconic that album is. All right. So the, the final question here from Charlie is, if you could choose one Dead song for Dylan to cover, what would it be? You can choose any era Dylan. Did Dylan ever cover the Dead? I think not. We will correct that. He was not a big cover guy, especially for contemporaries. I'd be intrigued by a Rolling Thunder era cover of Scarlet Begonias. That's a pretty cool Oh, I like pick, that. Actually. I yeah. like that idea. Uh, but, but Dylan did cover The Dead. He covered uh, Alabama Getaway and West LA Fade Away. Did he cover anything else? He did Friend of the Devil. Ah, uh, yeah. As well. And I think that is it. I mean, he might have done some other songs as one-offs. But yeah, he did those three. I also like the idea of Bob covering Althea. I think he could have done a really good Althea. And that could have been any era. I guess it would have to be 80s, post-80s <laughs> Bob. Like, never-ending tour Bob. And it's not too late, you know. Assuming Bob is able to tour again, you know, once we get out of this COVID haze, maybe you can bust out an Althea. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> I'd be into that. I'd be into that, yeah. Yeah, I don't have a really good answer for this. I would like to hear, like, 66 era Dylan... You know, grappling with some of those weird early Robert Hunter lyrics, like a China Cat or the Eleven or something like that. Like, I don't think he would he would never play with a band that could roll with the Eleven and its crazy time signatures. But Dylan doing St. Stephen or something like that with the Hawks would be an interesting thought experiment. So let's get into the context of this show. As we said earlier, this was officially released in 1998, but it was a widely bootleg show before that. And as much as we talk about The Grateful Dead, revolutionizing people taping shows and obviously becoming a famous band because people tape shows and they, and they traded tapes. I feel like Dylan really was at the forefront of the bootleg market. Like he, I think even to this day is probably the most bootlegged artist of all time because not only do you have concerts being bootlegged, but you also have all of these outtakes of his Starting with the basement tapes, of course, but there's voluminous outtakes for pretty much every album 
or certainly every classic album of his. The Royal Albert Hall like bootleg is one of the most famous bootlegs of all time, right? And from like the very early, early days of bootlegs being a thing. I think the only one even more famous is uh, the Great White Wonder bootleg, which was the basement tapes and I think some other random live outtake type stuff thrown in as well. That was... You know, out in the early 70s at a time when, I mean, I guess he was still making albums, but he wasn't on the road. And so there was, I think, a lot of hunger for fresh Dylan material. The Great White Wonder stuff like leaked out because they, they sent out acetates of the basement tapes to try and get other artists to cover those songs i believe and then yeah and it, and it worked them. i mean yeah i mean because you know there were like manfred Mann having a hit yeah well with, that's where quinn the eskimo came from yeah and the birds were covering you know you ain't going nowhere right you know well before that was released as a dylan song of course the band putting i shall be released on their first record right so yeah there were numerous instances of that and this is an iconic show as we've alluded to before because of not only do you have dylan and you have the Hawks, who become the band, these two legendary entities, but because of the hostility that they faced. Right. And there's the big moment at the end of the show, which I guess we'll say it now. Are we gonna because <laughs> we're not gonna wait to like a Rolling Stone, right? To to discuss the Judas right. moment, which is the most famous heckle in rock history. I, I can't think of anything that comes close to that. Yeah. Of like an audience artist interaction and Dylan, of course, hearing that and saying, I don't believe you. You're a liar. And then the play fucking loud to the band. And then they play really fucking loud for about eight minutes, uh, like a Rolling Stone. And spoiler alert, I think it's awesome. (laughs) I love it. Right. It's like one of the coolest things of all time, that moment. And so, as you know, both of us being sort of inoculated with a love of classic rock from an early age. I I don't even remember when I read about this moment. I just feel like I've known about it forever, like since I started listening to music. And it's funny because it kind of like blurs together maybe in some people's minds with Dylan going electric at Newport in 1965 and then you know almost a year later somebody yelling judas at him in england i I feel like it's one of those things that like in a hundred years historians will just talk about as happening at the same concert because history will just get condensed like that but i mean it's something you've heard about from the moments you learn about the history of rock and roll like every rock and roll history documentary has this moment in it i feel like and so it's it's kind of thrilling to hear like the entire show around that and actually when this came out you know so the royal albert hall bootleg I believe was just the electric set. Certainly the original like vinyl pressing of it in the 70s was just the electric set. And I'm not sure that the acoustic set circulated until this finally came out in 1998 officially. So that was, I think, exciting to Dylan fans to hear the whole show. They recorded a a number of shows on this tour, I think, which is why they could put out this big box set of good quality shows. But but this was the one that they uh, put out. So Dylan, the Dead Have Dick's Picks and Dave's Picks. Dylan has the Bootleg series, which has been running for, you know, 20 some years now and they released it kind of strange at first there's a box set that is volumes one through three and it's just sort of odds and sods of dylan outtakes from across his whole career and then this was volume four so the first complete concert they put out was this concert even though i don't think dylan has a whole lot to do with the bootleg series it's like his uh manager right that kind of runs that 
that's like the, yeah at like this Dylan's point dick. yeah and it's and it's and at this point it's turned into that thing where they're sort of like co- copyright releases essentially oh, sure. yeah. where they have to release things so that they don't lose the copyright although if you're a Dylan freak like me right. you will buy every box set that comes out because yeah you do want to hear 20 takes of I want you right from March of 1966 because it's so good. But yeah, to go back to what you were saying before about them recording every night, they had this thing. They it was called a nightly ritual where after every show they would all get together and listen to the recordings of the shows. And I think on some level they wanted to listen because they're like, man, people are booing us every night. Like, does this sound pretty good? And they listen to it and go like, no, yeah, this sounds pretty pretty good. Yeah, you know. So what's the deal? So yeah, there's like good recordings of of a lot of the shows uh, that they played in '66. We have to mention, though, that if you are going to stream this show, that there's something really kind of hilarious. <laughs> that it's, it's sad. Like a, yeah. It's, it's sad and it's hilarious. Uh, there's a glitch where on the CD release, the booing was a negative track, essentially, between the regular tracks. So if you listen to the CD straight through, you hear all the booing, you hear all the catcalling. But when they put this into streaming services, the negative tracks weren't included. So you actually don't hear any of the booing uh, on Spotify or Apple Music uh, or really any streaming service. Right. So you, you don't hear Judas... You know, like it, kind so of the whole put, reason for releasing this show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the performances are are right. brilliant. Anyway, it's great music, but yeah, it is a little like watching a movie on television where all the violence and the ed- and the swearing has been edited out. Right. Like th- that's what. So this is where I'm going to feel really smug for being a CD owner <laughs> to this day because I have the CD and I can enjoy it. All the booing. I don't have to rely on a streaming service. Uh, I wonder, like, if you can go on YouTube or something and hear unabridged versions. If there's, like, anywhere you can go. And uh, hopefully we all figured this out in the interim between recording this and posting it. Maybe we can share a link or something. It's got to be somewhere. Right. You can just hear the show the way it was meant to be played. But, yeah, it's... I hope they got to fix that because that is, like, a big rewriting of history here. Mm -hmm. I know it's like a uh, like a, a masterpiece painting in a museum, but they've cut off one quarter of it <laughs> and put it up and said, "Hey, look at this! It's the Mona Lisa, but we've like removed one of her eyes," sort of thing. Like you listen to it without knowing the context on Spotify, which how would you know just from Spotify because they don't ever provide any context? Yeah, you would miss this whole element of it, which is crazy. It's like watching Scarface on like TBS. All the F words are turned to like funky or like funny or right. whatever. It's 35 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. You don't see the chainsaw go into the guy's head in the shower. Right. That scene. Well, hopefully we can point people somewhere where they can hear the unabridged version. Or I'll just say it again. Start buying CDs. Yeah. You could probably Buy find CDs. this. You could find this at a used CD store. Absolutely. I actually bought another CD version of this because mine was skipping. <laughs> Wore <much>. out. <laughs> yeah. I, I still had the one I bought in 98. Yeah. And the acoustic disc was skipping. It, it skipped in the middle of Visions of Johanna, mm. which is like yeah. awful. Yeah, so can't, it can't made me it. be like, I, I, I can spend another I can spend another $10 just to have a perfect sounding Visions of Johanna. So that was worth it. Um Getting into the Bob Dylan in 66 context, I mean, we've already talked a lot about his stature at this time. But right. I mean, just to reiterate for people maybe who aren't super into Bob Dylan, he's in the middle of a period 
he's really at the end of this period at the time he plays this show. But in 65, in the spring, he puts out Bring It All Back Home, which has Subterranean, Homesick Blues, Mr. Tambourine Man, It's All Right Ma, It's All Over Now Baby Blue, classic album, his first electric album. Six months later or so, he puts out Highway 61 Revisited. That's a month after the Newport gig. Right. And he actually recorded like a little bit of that album, I think, after that gig. Then he starts going on tour. And in between concert dates in early 66, he's writing and recording Blonde on Blonde. And then, you know, he's in Australia and he goes to Europe, plays this show. The tour ends. He has his motorcycle accident in July of 66, which is about about 18 months after bringing it all back home at this point. Mm-hmm. Not even 18 months. I mean, all that happened in about a year and a half. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. It's like, crazy. What this guy did. Yeah. And, that, it's, and that's not even talking about what he's going to do with the basement tapes, like the amount of songs that he wrote. Right. And it's 66, 67, and then he does John Wesley Harding at the end of the year. Right. To me, it's like the greatest two-year run by anyone. I don't think there's anyone even close to like what Bob Dylan did Right. Uh, at this time. Because he was, and also he was massively huge before that, too. Like, he had become the top guy in the American folk music scene in the early 60s. Kind of out of nowhere, too. He just, like, shows up in New York in 61, 62. And within two years, he's writing, you know, Blowing in the Wind and the Times They Are Changing. And, like, these massive message songs that are, you know, uniting the youth of America in this tumultuous historical time. And, you know, he gets, he's at Newport in, you know, 63 and 64. And he is just, like, the king of this world. And then he comes back in 65 and pisses them all off. Because <laughs> that's, that's that's a real exciting thing about 65 and 66 is that he could have written like topical we didn't start the fire type protest songs every year for the rest of his life and been you know a millionaire and at the top of his game and would have been remembered as a great but instead he decided to pull the rug out from underneath himself and start playing this rock music that was so looked down upon by the folk music scene yeah that's kind of the 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 story of those two years you're talking about is not so much changing himself but adapting what he was doing into a rock idiom and alienating his original fan base and but taking his art to an entire new level uh in spite of all the resistance that he faced and he has this incredible creative output he's playing a lot of concerts he's also essentially burning himself out yeah and you know this period is very well documented in in various films there's don't look back which is really showing him at the beginning of this period it's like early 65 when had put up bring it all back home but he was still performing by himself as the solo troubadour and then we have eat the document which is an unreleased film but you can Literally Google Eat the Document and find a video link to it if you want to see it. But a lot of that footage was repurposed for No Direction Home, which Rob talked about, the the Martin Scorsese documentary from 2005, I believe. It was either 04 or 05. Mm -hmm. And you listen to these shows that he's playing at this time, and people remarked upon this at the time. Like when you read about, you know, this tour, it sounds like he's on downers during the acoustic set. And then for the electric set, it, it, he sounds way amped up. Mm. So it's, I don't know if it's like just, you know, changing, like, like take one set of pills for the acoustic set and another set of pills for the electric set. I mean, certainly like if you look at Dylan at this time, how gaunt he looks, 
he definitely looks like like a speed freak. Like yeah. He's not eating a whole lot of food, <laughs> I'm sure. And apparently, he's. I don't think he was a big drinker at this time. Like, you can even see this in Eat the Document. He's always drinking tea. And then, like, Clinton Halen's book about this period it just talks about how like him and like robbie robertson just drank tea like all night long probably because they're like speeding their ass off <laughs> and i don't know if there's like a connection between tea and speed man I, it um, seems like it would be a doubling effect but i don't know yeah i mean eat the document opens up with him and i think richard taking snorts of i assume speed it, it's one of these things where i talked about like my book idea where it maybe it de-romanticizes it a little bit but you know everything about dylan in this period just like the fact that he was writing 40 verses for like a rolling stone (laughs) before he whittled it down to the final four or just all the imagery that he's using and all this like free association uh is classic like speed freak behavior right i mean it's genius too and not it's not like anybody could just take amphetamines and put this out but he he was writing 50 some songs a year (laughs) he was you know playing songs faster i would say than he uh used to play in his folk days like all the signs are there that he had a real issue and i mean you can see it in all of these you know movies that you brought up especially no direction home that he was just at the end of his rope and of course there's a conspiracy theory that there was no motorcycle accident or that the motorcycle accident wasn't as bad as it's made out to be uh, and that it was just kind of an excuse for him to, one, get off the road and to kick whatever addictions were becoming a serious problem for him at this time. So uh, I don't know how you feel about that as, as to whether it was real or not, but uh, it was clear that it had to stop. It seems like both things can be true. I don't, right. I mean, I'm sure that there was some sort of accident, but I, though that accident seems like it was fortuitous for him. You know, he was also newly married. He already had a child. I think he wanted to settle down a little bit. And certainly that was the story of the next several years of his career where he wasn't touring and the kind of music that he was making was so different from this supercharged music that he was making in the mid-60s. It got way more mellow after that. So yeah, it seemed like it was a good excuse for him to clean up. Um, Just want to do a quick shout out to the 65 shows that don't really get as much attention. I think in part because the recordings that are out there aren't very good. Like his first electric show after Newport was at uh, Forest Hill Stadium outside of New York. I, I think that was in August of 65. And the recording of that is like pretty bad. And that wasn't with the Hawks. I, wait, no, I'm sorry. It was, I think it was Robbie and Levon and then Harvey Brooks and Al Cooper. Right. Because Al, Al Cooper talks about how that like scared him out of the band, basically. <laughs> right. It was such a negative reaction, and he did not want to uh, travel around the country with a hostile audiences every night in and night out when figures were being assassinated uh, left and right in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, I think they actually like went down to Texas, and that was a show he didn't want to go to because right. that's like where Kennedy was shot. So he's like, yeah, if they if they did that to Kennedy, like, what are they going to do to us if we go down to Texas? Although yeah. apparently Texas was like one of the few areas where they were like pretty well received. Makes sense. Yeah, and and, and Dylan talked about that later. He felt like all oh, the Texas people get it. But you can find recordings of a, a show that they did like the week after the Forest Hills gig at the Hollywood Bowl, which is a soundboard recording. And it's it's interesting hearing what they were doing at that time. There's some songs that they didn't play later on, like Tombstone Blues. They play they play a song called, um, I don't know if this they were playing it at this time or if it was like later in 65, a song called Long Distance Operator, which 
was a song that ended up on the basement tapes right. performed by the band. Um, but at this time, Dylan sang it and he wrote the song. So it's an interesting point of comparison. The Hawks joined Dylan as a unit in September of 65. And it's my understanding that like Dylan didn't hear them play. Like he just was talked into it presumably by Robbie and Levon. Yeah, he had hired, well, he was recommended to them by John Hammond Jr. Or John Hammond Jr. recommended the Hawks to Dylan. Yeah, as you said, Robbie and Levon joined first and then they kind of put their foot down and said, if you're going to take us, you got to take the rest of the band. So that's great. But then Levon didn't last very long. <laughs> he, like, no. he only played a few shows. He also did not like the scene and he was like, uh, peace out. Uh, do you know what Levon Helm did instead of going on tour with Dylan? I think that he like, I don't know, if this was at this time, I know at some point he went to go work on an oil rig. Exactly. Like he, in the Gulf of Mexico. Was that was that after this that tour? Was, that's what he did instead of tour with Dylan. So uh, playing shows with Dylan in this period was so unpleasant that he chose oh. to work on an oil rig instead. <laughs> so how, could, how badass is Levon Hill? I know. That is such amazing. a badass thing to do. Exactly. Like, oh, it's so cool that he did that. I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about him not being on the tour. Sure. Uh, like later on, because I love Levon Helm, I love his drumming, and it's it's a little weird to just imagine the Hawks, i.e., the band without him. Having said that, Mickey Jones, who replaced him and was a, another Southern redneck guy, mm-hmm. was playing in Johnny Rivers' band. He went on to become an actor where he basically just played bikers a lot, <laughs> like he's in Justified, uh, sure. where he, where he's a drug dealer in that show, and he has like a beard. And right, we talked about this. He was on Home Improvement. That's right. Was he like one of the tool time guys? Yeah, he's one of the tool time guys. And I'm pretty sure in No Direction Home, they talked to Mickey Jones. And I'm pretty sure they're interviewing him on the tool time set. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. So they hire Mickey Jones. And Mickey Jones, like, kills it. Like, he's amazing. Yeah. And there's an argument to be made that his more bombastic style might have been better suited for Dylan at this time. Like, Levon Helm's an amazing drummer, but he's a more nuanced drummer, more soulful. Mm-hmm. Whereas Mickey Jones is just a basher. I don't know. I just wonder if that's what they needed for these shows. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he has to, like, it's kind of up to him to cut through the noise a little bit. And, I mean, you call him a basher. He has one of the most famous bashes in rock history on this record. So, uh, yeah, he, he worked out perfectly. Levon, like, probably would have been fine, I would think, because, I mean, part of why the Hawks were the perfect band for this era for Dylan is that they were called the Hawks because they were Ronnie Hawkins' backing band. And Ronnie Hawkins was, you know, the he's the who do you love guy. Like, he was, like, playing basically a barroom circuit, mostly in Canada, I think. And that's why the Hawks and the band are... 80% Canadian, except for Levon Helm. But I, I imagine them, you know, sort of building up their chops in a lot of places where they were playing behind chicken wire, bars with sawdust on the floor and things like that. So, you know, going into hostile environments and playing to crowds that might be booing or angry at you. Uh, I don't think that was unfamiliar territory for the Hawks. So I have a feeling Levon could have brought some of that energy, but you're right that I think a more direct drummer was actually sort of an accidental benefit here because Mickey Jones just kind of is laying down a very hard, thick rock drum sound. Have you ever heard the the Newport 65 set, the electric set? Yeah. Yeah, that is not good. 
And it, it's kind of funny because like historical moments sort of blur together in people's minds. But if you listen to that and the band that Dylan was playing with, which was kind of thrown together last minute because he kind of decided to do this last minute at Newport in 65. But the drums for that are so weak and limp. And that's part of why it doesn't really work, have anywhere near the power that like this show does. Uh, and, well, it, and you can chalk that up, I think, a little bit to Mickey Jones just being like, I'm going to hit the drums really hard type of drummer. Yeah, I mean, and I'll say too, like the, if you listen to the 65 shows that Levon plays on, they sound good. They sound really good, in fact. But there is something where by the end of this tour, they were so loud and powerful and and when you read accounts reviews of the shows like from this time everyone always talks about how loud they yeah, were right and, and and certainly you know for the time i'm sure it was even louder because there really weren't i mean this was really at the beginning of you know bands doing these kinds of tours i mean you had the beatles just a few years earlier playing in america on like terrible pas where <laughs> no one could hear the band anyway because everyone was screaming right you know, and even with all the chaos at these shows, I mean, Dylan and the Hawks like were so like in people's faces, and there's almost this sense of Dylan turning it up even louder, like the more people boo. Like again, the fuck you energy of right. these shows. Play it fucking like, loud, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know, and I've, I've I've argued this before. I mean, I, in a way, I think you could say you could almost call this like the first punk rock tour. I think, because if you think of punk rock as like a confrontational kind of music, mm-hmm. what's more confrontational than Dylan and the Hawks in 66? Yeah. You know, it, it has that anger and spitefulness to it. Another thing I got to say, too, because I feel like this always comes up when people talk about the, the band. It's really fashionable now to like take shots at Robbie Robertson. <laughs> yes. And I totally understand why he's an arrogant guy in a lot of ways. He's got the hair. You know, if you see The Last Waltz, he's like in every frame. But and I'm going to quote the Big Lebowski here. That creep can roll. <laughs> that yeah. creep can roll. If you are a Robbie hater, I'm sorry. You cannot say a goddamn word about Robbie Robertson in this show and i'm i'm gonna be slurping robbie big time <laughs> no I, I i see what you're talking about robbie robertson is a difficult man has only gotten more difficult with time i mean the last waltz is sort of showing his true colors and he's only really doubled down on that ever since uh as far as you know taking a lot of credit for the band that maybe he isn't totally entitled to but yeah, I mean, he's he's incredible on this record. Like, he's such a good guitarist. And I mean, he's great on the band records, too. Like, I mean, it, if you only knew him for his guitar playing, you would think he was a saint <laughs> and that he's incredible. Uh, and I'll, I'll bring up the Newport 65 show again, because Mike Bloomfield is the lead guitarist for that show uh, and plays on a lot of the early electric Dylan Record. Really, Highway 61 is the big Bloomfield, Bloomfield one. record. This struck me when I was watching No Direction Home this time that Bloomfield was basically the John Mayer of the 60s. Like, he even kind of looks like John Mayer. And he's a, a very good technical guitarist, but also not my kind of guitarist. <laughs> like, very, very classically blues, very flashy, very, here's a lot of notes. Uh, Robbie Robertson yeah. is not that at all. He is a very subtle guitarist. Like, he can play really good leads, but they're always very melodic and very lyrical. He has a sound that is unlike anybody else. Like, you can tell a Robbie Robertson lead 
immediately uh and uh his style is already like fully matured uh for this record as far as i'm concerned you can hear the robbie robertson of the band uh in these solos on this on this disc just hard and violent and yet so graceful Mm -hmm. yeah it's unbelievable so you know again trying to pace myself with the superlatives (laughs) but we're talking about we're talking about you know real albert hall aka manchester free trade hall i mean the superlatives are earned we should say, too, just to bring it back to the Grateful Dead for a moment, that they didn't play a show on May 17th, 1966, but they did play a show on May 19th, 1966 at the Avalon Theater in San Francisco. And um, it's a good point of comparison for what Dylan is doing. And I alluded to this earlier about how even though Dylan and the Dead ended up being contemporaries, at this point in their career, Dylan was like eons ahead of the dead at this point the dead had really only been together for a year i think they played their first show in may of 65 so this is just a year later and you can go on live archive and hear the show it's actually like a really good recording it's like surprisingly good but yeah they sound like a a bluesy garage rock band right all the songs are about four minutes long i mean there's no jamming really pretty straightforward they could have been a band on the nuggets compilation right at that point yeah i mean i I was struck by how similar they sound to like the hawks right i mean there's a lot of like organ in there from big pen there's like except nowhere near as good nowhere near as good but um one of the weird things about this show is that you know when i first heard about people booing dylan for going electric here like i i thought it was because nobody had heard music like this before and they were just like what is this i can't even imagine this but I think there were a lot of bands that kind of sounded like like hard, you know, blues rock by 66. Dylan like, sounded like that in his records. I know, exactly. And so it's so uh, weird Highway to me. 61. Yeah, it wasn't like... It, 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 so something else was going on there. It wasn't so much that this was a new sound that they hadn't heard before. It was that it was a sound that they associated with like like low rent music. Like uh, this is more of like a classism, like folk fans looking down on rock music thing, than like a, this is a revolutionary new sound thing. I mean, like you know, Chuck Berry had been around for years by this point. Like rock and roll was an old thing. It had already gone out of fashion and come back. The Beatles were huge. This comes between. Rubber Soul and Revolver, right? In 66. So it was, I mean, folk music was, I think, to the 60s, like what indie rock was to the 90s. You know, there was this idea of purity. Right. That fans of that music had. They had pretensions of, like, authenticity. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess if we're trying to contextualize how folkies felt, I guess, you know, if the Grateful Dead had made a record that sounded like Duran Duran or something <laughs> in 1984. Like maybe yeah. that's the analogy to make because people just thought that Dylan, you know, the folkies thought that Dylan was just selling out to like this crass pop music right? by doing this. And, and you know, when you see Dylan in this period, he's wearing like these like snazzy dandyish suits and like polka dot shirts. Yeah. And he's got like, cool boots and sunglasses you know and, and just like a year or two earlier he was wearing like the workman's shirt well, he's doing like you Woody know. Guthrie cosplay basically yeah like playing for like sharecroppers in the south you right. know and this was like oh now he's like this slick guy yeah. maybe you could even say it'd be like the Grateful Dead playing with a pop star as the guitar player <laughs> let's say John Mayer maybe the Grateful, uh, the Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead hiring John Mayer is their is their doing going electric moment. Well, so uh, I, is, is the argument I'm making. I was trying to think of like so I feel like for a long time the go-to like analogy people would make 
is Dylan going electric would be like X Rockstar going electronic. Like if Springsteen had made an electronic album or something like that. But now I think it's come so full circle that the modern equivalent of Dylan going electric would be Billie Eilish coming out and playing a blues rock set. <laughs> like Ooh. it has come uh, 360 around to like the most like scandalous thing like a modern pop star could do would be to come out and play something like Dylan and the Hawks played in 1966 because rock again is so out of fashion and looked down upon so much that this would be like shocking to that fan base, right? There's, I, I can't even imagine what else would be more uh, rebellious or. You I'm, know. uh, hey everyone, I'm Taylor Swift. My new <laughs> single is called Pride and Joy by Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> exactly. That'd be awesome. I'd be I'd be so in favor of that. <laughs> we should also mention too that Grateful Dead show from May nineteenth, nineteen sixty six. They cover "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue" in that show. Yeah, and it's more of a fast version, but I believe Jerry sings it, and so that's kind of a cool connection. Yeah, Chase live in sixty six. Chase this, you know, Bob Dylan show in the Hawks with that Dead show. It's like it's a fun Dead show. It's right. it's not the Dead that we all know and love, but it's an interesting embryonic version of the band. Yeah, it's funny that the dead were electrifying an acoustic Dylan song just two days after this show. So That's it, true. Yeah. That's true. And no one called them Judas because <laughs> everyone was too screwed up yeah. at the time. Let's set the scene quickly before we get into our show, finally. The number one song in America this week in uh, May 66 was Monday, Monday, 
by the Mamas and Papas. The number two song, however, was my favorite Bob Dylan song, Everyone <laughs> Must Get High, as I, I, I jokingly call it. My, my friend Joe had this bit where whenever we'd go into a record store, he'd be like, go to the record clerk and ask where I can find Bob Dylan's Everyone Must Get High. <laughs> uh, just like a total dopey just idiot question to ask. Yeah. Which, and he knew, because I was such a Dylan fan, uh, he's like, I'd never do that. I couldn't. <laughs> humiliate myself you like would that die. yeah i mean it's it, to me i always forget that dylan was this commercially successful right at this time oh like, yeah like i know that he was like artistically successful and was on you know the cover of life magazine or whatever the voice of a new generation but the fact that rainy day women was number two in the country is pretty remarkable especially because i imagine a lot of radio stations wouldn't play it could you say everybody must get stoned on american radio at that time like it that surprises me i think it was like one of those things like where it's like a double entendre because it's also it's like a biblical allusion too <laughs> sure to like uh, and and that was a song that was nodding to the uh reception that they were getting mm-hmm. on the road you mm-hmm. know for playing electric songs because that song was recorded i believe in like march of 66 mm-hmm. and it got spun around and put on the radio but yeah i mean this was like what dylan was really pursuing chart success because he had a number two hit with like a rolling stone Positively 4th Street was a top 10 hit. And then his next song was Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window, which bombed as a single. And then Rainy Day Women was next. So it got him back on track commercially. But I don't think any of the Blonde on Blonde singles did quite as well as Rainy Day Women. Like, I Know I Want You was a single. I think that did pretty well, but I don't think it was a top 10. Just Like hit. a Woman wasn't a single at the time? I don't know. We should look this up. I know that he had another top 10 hit a few years later with Lady Lady Lay. Right. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, Bob as the pop star. Yeah. Pretty cool. And then number three on the charts this week was Good Lovin' for another Oh, there you connection. go. So, another uh, dead connection. I think they also play in that uh, May 66 show. So just shows you that the dead were not afraid to play the hits of the day <laughs> at the time. That's true. And that would have been, yeah, they were like a show band exactly. playing Good Lovin' here. Yeah. Right when that was peaking. Sooner or later, One of Us Must Know was like released as a single before Rainy Day Women. And mm. that bombed yeah. too, which is like insane. Because <laughs> I would assume that One of Us Must Know would be more commercial than Rainy Day Women. Yeah. That, that song's so amazing. Anyway, the number one album in the country, Mamas and Papas, If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears, you know, part of the folk rock boom that Dylan was spearheading even though he hated folk rock he, <laughs> yeah. he hated that term but uh, certainly mamas and papas were were part of that along with the birds and the turtles and barry mcguire and all that stuff sunny and Cher even would would have been lumped in there with yeah. i got you babe which was sort of like a bob dylan ripoff yeah uh the number one movie in the country dr shivago which i have not seen i have not seen that either yeah i've never sat down for the very long dr shivago very long Follow-up, I believe, to Lawrence of Arabia by David Lean, the director, starring Omar Sharif and the lovely Julie Christie. Mm. Love Julie Christie. The top TV shows in the country. Number five, Batman. Okay, sure. 66. That makes sense. Number four, The Red Skelton Hour. There you go. Any Red Skelton fans out there? <laughs> like, probably not. Uh, number three, The Lucy Show, which we talked about in our last episode. Number two, Gomer Pyle. And number one, Bonanza. Yeah, a lot of these were in that 68 dead show, so things didn't change very quickly on TV back then. No, Batman seems like vaguely countercultural to me, because it's like an irreverent 
show it's pop art pop art not much else that seems all that cool yeah there was like another album on the album chart that i saw that was called the ballads of the green berets <laughs> so it's like they took the ballad oh, of the green beret and made spinoff songs or something so you get this from don't look back and eat the document too where it's like dylan is he, he looks a little bit like a time traveler in the mid 60s world that is still we're pre psychedelic 60s here or at the very very early days of it so you know Dylan in his sunglasses and his, as you say, his cool skinny suits and polka dots. Like, he looks very bizarre com- against the backdrop of all this, like, still very conservative America and England. Yeah, there's this story about, like, when Dylan was in England on this tour, he played Blonde on Blonde for Paul McCartney, and Paul McCartney played him Tomorrow Never Knows from Revolver. Revolver came out in August of 1966, the first big Beatles psychedelic record. And I think Dylan even said this in an interview, that he was like, the 50s didn't end until like 1965. Mm. And and he actually said that he didn't like the 60s very much. Like he felt more <laughs> like a part of the 50s. And it's an interesting observation because you feel like Dylan invented the 60s in a lot of ways, or he was ahead of his time but he does check out of the larger culture yeah. after this just as it's getting going really yeah he's already going back to the back to the land right he's going back to the land and he's like checking out of like the media spotlight and people are trying to drag him into it you know like woodstock takes place in woodstock because dylan was up there and he's right. like i hate all these people <laughs> i'm not showing I, up <laughs> i hate the hippies yeah. they're showing up at my house all the time it's hell but you know what it's his own fault because he played shows like May 17th, 1966, that blew people's minds. Even the people who hated it, it still blew their minds. <laughs> so let's get into that show. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
right, so here we are, May 17th, 1966, Manchester Free Trade Hall. We start with the acoustic set. Yeah, and just to, uh, you know, a lot of these venues on this tour were like sit-down theater venues, right? All the footage you see from this tour, it's like opera houses, and people are seated. So just to put yourself in the experience of what this show might have been like, you would have been sitting in a velvet chair in a very nice, beautiful room waiting to hear Bob Dylan perform. Yeah, certainly like on the English part of the tour, that was true. I mean, on other parts of the tour, I think they were playing arenas or, you know, like I said before, they played the Hollywood Bowl in oh, September sure. of 65. In the and US, I think in yeah. And I think in Australia, they were playing in, in stadiums too. But yeah, in England, yeah, they're playing these old theaters, basically, which would have been awesome. You know, again, if I'm not getting too angry at the audience for being <laughs> fucking stupid and booing Bob Dylan, I think it would have been amazing to be there. But yeah, we start off with the acoustic set she belongs to me from bring it all back home of course we talked about this song in our dicks picks 21 episode a much different era of the grateful dead when they covered it in 85 uh this is 19 years earlier than that i said this earlier but like in the first set of this tour during the acoustic songs it often sounds like dylan is, is extremely stoned on like downers basically and there were people that accused him of phoning it in during the acoustic set like a lot of the reviews from that time felt like he wasn't really into the acoustic part and was much more energized during the electric side but at least on this show i don't feel like he's phoning it in this set is in many ways doesn't have the revolutionary flavor of the electric side but the songs that he's playing are actually like way more complex and most of them like people haven't heard i mean they knew she belongs to me but we're going to talk about some other songs that like were not released yet and they're like dense long songs you know that he's unleashing on this audience <laughs> for the first time like for the first time uh, for them hearing it i mean he did these songs throughout the tour but it's a pretty like ballsy thing to do just even in the acoustic set mm-hmm. you know like, dylan's pretty courageous i think yeah it's never like struck me as phoned in or even like stoned i guess it's almost kind of struck me sometimes as maybe a little bit impatient the acoustic sets on this tour like he was so much more excited by doing the electric part of the set, but he still felt obligated to do the acoustic solo Bob Dylan thing for half the show. So even as confrontational as these shows were, he was still, you know, giving them what they want, quote unquote, for the first half by just being Bob Dylan, the folk musician. And I like Although how these aren't folk songs, though. I think it's important to stress that like he's not like they're acoustic, but like these are not old timey sounding songs. I mean, these are like visionary songs some of these songs too were played with a band on the record right like she belongs to me yeah exactly so i think on this show he sounds pretty dialed in yeah there's a show that our friend ray paget who does a great newsletter called flagging on the double e's it's a, a Substack, a bob dylan Substack, which you must subscribe to if you are a dylan fan it's essential yeah. reading we'll like it he does so many great interviews but he hipped us, he suggested that we check out the Paris show. The show like where the audience actually gets angry do- during the acoustic set because Dylan like fucks around so much. <laughs> yeah. Like did you listen to that? Like the just uh, the just like a woman like retunes his guitar for like five minutes. Yeah. And yells at the audience for about you know, being impatient, and he's like, I'm, I'm just trying to get it right up here. <laughs> like, don't you want to hear it in the right tune? And like all that. And there he seems like pretty slur, like yeah. slurry, yeah. like in that set. Like, it sounds like he's slurring his words. Yeah, there's definitely some shenanigans going on at times in the acoustic sets, but... What I wanted to say was that, like, he 
is very much, I was doing air quotes, which you can't see on a podcast, uh, giving them what they want, <laughs> because I feel like he, you know, Dylan is more than anything else, he's he's a prankster, right? To this very day, he is still into like pranking people uh, about what they expect from Bob Dylan and what he actually gives them. And so I feel like this acoustic set, he's like, on the surface, this is going to be like the Bob Dylan that they want to see, right? They, they want me to stand up there with an acoustic guitar and a harmonica and play folk songs. So I'm going to do that, except I'm going to play almost entirely new material. None of it is going to be, you know, quote unquote, protest songs that people demand. And, you know, one of the famous lines from this tour and the documentaries around this is that he says they're all protest songs. I'm always protesting. Um, but uh, like he is giving them like the surface Dylan uh, that they expect, uh, but subverting it uh, as much as he can within that format. And that's part of what I love about this acoustic set is that I feel like in a lot of ways, it's just as confrontational as the electric set. But everybody just eats it up, especially like in Paris, they got mad. But in Manchester, everybody loves this set. Like between every song, you don't hear any booing. You hear big applause, even for the new songs. People are totally into it. But I think he's being just as like bratty and in your face as he is, uh, you know, in the second part of the show. Well, it's funny because like when you watch No Direction Home, they have they show more of the interviews like with audience members. Right. And there are people who complain about his tempo in the acoustic set and right. the harmonica playing. I love that, yeah. Which, which again, shows how fucking stupid these people are. <laughs> because, it, let's go to fourth time around. Yeah. Because I feel like this is a song where the harmonica playing is really starting to shine. And I just want to say that I don't know how people feel, like if, if there's people out there who feel like his harmonica playing is too much in this set i think it's mind-blowing his harmonica i think it's spine tingling on a lot of these songs and it starts with four time around which again a new song i think he recorded it in february in nashville it's gonna come out on blonde on blonde which came out in june of 66 so he's playing it second fearlessly and yeah the harmonica playing on this song i think is just Absolutely beautiful. I mean, normally I consider harmonica about as well as I consider blues slide guitar. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to disagree with you here. I think this is like maybe the best like harmonica performance I know. It is so good and so noisy, scronky. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, I think a lot of these folk music fans showed up and expected, oh, Bob Dylan, he wrote Blown in the Wind. It's just going to be a nice evening of folk music, which is stupid because as you said, bringing it all back home in Highway 61, those are out. Like, people know that he's gone electric, quote-unquote. But the harmonica is considered, like, a traditional instrument, I guess, to the folk music crowd. And yet he is playing it with the sort of savage <laughs> intensity of, like, you know, Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground or, yeah. like, a, like, a Thurston like, Moore Sonic Youth solo. Like, it is just... like John Coltrane shit. Yeah, know? exactly. Like blowing. It's almost, like, atonal at yeah. times. Oh, but absolutely. Like it, in a beautiful way it mm -hmm. just hits me so well mm -hmm. like I, I love it yeah i mean it for that and that's how he solos right because he's playing acoustic guitar and playing the rhythm and playing the chords of the songs but like the solos with the harmonica are just like as intense as anything in the second set i feel like but it just it didn't track for people because like oh it's bob dylan up there doing his harmonica thing it didn't it didn't hit quite as hard fourth time around i love not only the fact that it, it's an unreleased song that they wouldn't have heard before but it's also famously like a riff on norwegian wood 
which presumably right. they would have heard because Rubber Soul came out a few months before this show. And I, I love that extra layer of it because, like, of course, he's friends with the Beatles. There's a scene in Eat the Document with him and John Lennon in the car. But Fourth Time Around has always been kind of weird as to whether it's a playful parody of Norwegian Wood or whether it's a little bit like Dylan telling the Beatles to, like, you know, go find your own thing. Don't rip off my thing. <laughs> and so, like, playing this is, it's very cheeky uh, to play this uh, in England uh, at this time, I think. Well, and, you know, that's the genius of, of Dylan, because it can be both things at the same time. It's right. uh, And it's a song that works perfectly well if you have no idea what the, the Beatles' backstory is. <laughs> right. Because it's a beautiful song on, on, on its own terms. Speaking of beautiful songs, let's go to Visions of Johanna. Next, which is the second song that he's playing in the set from Blonde on Blonde. It's longer than Four Time Around. It's more ambitious. Are we in agreement that this is, like, cause I think this is my favorite Bob Dylan song. Yeah, I was surprised. We both agree with all the Bob Dylan songs out there. We both have the same Bob Dylan song. I guess that's why we do a podcast together. It's a popular choice, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's definitely one of, like, his great masterpieces, I think. It's interesting because, you know, he had tried to cut this in the studio with the Hawks when it was originally known as Freeze Out. And if you get that cutting edge box set, which is eight discs of, of outtakes, you can get like a 16 disc version <laughs> of outtakes from 65 and 66. I don't have the 16 disc version, but I have the comparably smaller, but still very expansive oh, Shame box on you. Set. You call yourself yeah. a real Dylan fan. Isn't there like an entire disc that is just like a Rolling Stone? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, like the 16 disc version, I think was like a couple thousand dollars it was just like, <laughs> right. well still it's crazy just you make crazy those, amount you make of money. those the, our big podcast money you couldn't afford that <laughs> well this was before i i was flush with 36 from the vault cash if i could <laughs> go back i would buy it now but he tried to cut this with the hawks and i i like the outtakes of that version of this song but like he he kept trying to get them to play it slower and they couldn't do it and in clinton halen's book he writes about how, you know, the Hawks were like pretty unseasoned at this point as like a recording band. Mm -hmm. And they really only knew how to play like in a pedal to the metal type style that you hear on this live record, which is kind of amazing to think about with the Hawks, who of course become the band and what they do on the basement tapes and music from Big Pink, which is all subtlety and gentleness and just how nuanced they became. But they didn't have that yet at that point. So... It wasn't until he went to Nashville and played with like the studio musicians, uh, like the country musicians, that he got that more languid pace on Blonde on Blonde that he got. Right. So I think that's why he ended up playing it in the acoustic set, because it's like, well, the Hawks can't get this song. I don't want to kick ass with this song. This is more of a dreamy type number. Yeah, the one great song where the band were studio musicians on, session musicians, is Multi by the Barbarians. Did you know that they were the band on that? Oh, that's, yeah, yeah that's right. The, Which, uh, the guy with the hook for the a hand? Guy with the hook, the drummer with the hook for a hand. I was, my, it blew my mind when I figured out, speaking of Nuggets, that's a, like a classic track on Nuggets, that the, but the band were the actual uh, session musicians on that. But yeah, Multi and Visions of Johanna have a very different uh, flavor. It's an amazing song, and uh, you have already expressed a lot of vitriol for the audience <laughs> and their reaction to this show. This is where I'm like, people... You guys heard one of the first couple dozen performances of Visions of Johanna. If Dylan had spent the rest of the night just like farting into a microphone, 
you still would have witnessed a, a peak artist playing one of his masterpieces for one of the very first times. And so how dare you boo anything that happens after this? Uh, and and it, like, you can hear it. Like the crowd is like awestruck, I think, by Visions of Johanna. Because, you know, the, it satisfies everybody. Like the old folkies that are there in, you know, the documentaries, a lot of the fans complain about the electric set that they can't hear the words. And that's like a very like folk music fan thing to complain about. They were there for the lyrics. They weren't necessarily there for the songs. So Visions of Johanna, I imagine, had those people just like orgasming <laughs> because oh my God. it's such a beautifully poetic song. Maybe it's not about uh, like a labor case in the in Southern America or like you know civil rights or something. It's about the ghosts of a past relationship haunting your current relationship. I mean, it is. It's got some of the greatest lyrics in Dylan's entire catalog, which makes them some of the greatest lyrics of all time. So yes, in this room, the heat pipes just cough. Right. Ghosts of electricity. Come on. God, it's so good. Come on, man. Inside the museums, infinity is going up on trial. Voices echo, this is what salvation must be like after a while. But Mona Lisa must have had the highway blues You can tell by the way she smiles See the primitive wallflower freeze When the jelly-faced women all sneeze Hear the one with the mustache say, Jeez, I can't find my knees Jewels and binoculars Hang from the head of the mule But these visions of Johanna They make it all seem so cruel Next up, oh, we have It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, another one of the greatest songs of all time. (laughs) And we mentioned earlier the Dead played an electric version of this two days after this show. Dylan, of course, has played this song electrically in the years after this, but yeah, he was still playing it this time. It's interesting with this song because there, there, there were a lot of like rock covers of this song like around this time. Like Them's version was out? Yeah, I think that would have been out around now. There was also 13th Floor Elevators, hmm. yeah, which is maybe my favorite version of the song that like, outside of the Dylan version, which is on Easter Everywhere. I think that was 67, so it would have been a little bit after this. But uh, yeah, this was a song, just to speak to your point earlier, about how even the squares in this audience, like they can't take electric versions of Dylan songs, but like other people were already doing that. Right. And this song in particular, I think, was pretty popular for people to cover. Well, and it all started with Mr. Tambourine Man and the birds, right? And that just took took Dylan to like another level. Like he was already huge. And then it was like, all of a sudden, covering his songs was an instant pathway to a hit. I think that's why you had so many people covering Baby Blue, which was only a few months old as far as coming out 
officially. Uh, he plays it in Don't Look Back in 65, which is like my favorite scene from Don't Look Back where oh my God. Donovan is backstage and he plays some like really flowery, hippie, dumbass Donovan song. Donovan went on to make good songs, but at this time he's just kind of a dope. And Dylan's you know, like, oh yeah, that was a pretty good song. Let me just whip out It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And it just ethers <laughs> Donovan. Credit to Donovan for even making music after that because yeah. <laughs> he just got destroyed. It's like that scene in Roadhouse where Swayze rips the guy's throat out <laughs> during the fight. That's what Dylan does to Donovan in that scene. It's, yeah. it's just a work of just it's murder homicidal artistic beauty. murder yeah it's, it, 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 it's amazing and this is an amazing version here i mean i love this version i i mean i don't know again like i feel like i'm gonna sound like the biggest groupie in the world so i'm trying to pace myself with the superlatives because we're not even to the electric set yet <laughs> so i'll just say brilliant before you move on you you brought up a good point in the notes which is this would have been a great song to play at the end of the acoustic set right because it oh, has, that's true it has that like message of like your world is over there's a new world. Yep. And it, it's it's amazing how many songs in this show have that like resonance. This is like the first of a lot of songs, I think, especially in the electric set, where it's like he didn't write the songs to with like a hostile audience in mind, I think. But when he sings these songs to a crowd that is just not coming with him to his sort of next artistic phase, they take on this like incredibly deep resonance, which is, you know, kind of chills inducing throughout the show. I mean, if someone had scripted this, you would have thought it was way too obvious of a metaphor for the changing tides of the 60s. You know, so it's just amazing that it happened. Like at Newport, this is the last song that he plays, you know, because he played three electric songs and then he had to come back out (laughs) and and play a couple acoustic songs after that. So yeah, it would have been a good dramatic flourish to end the acoustic set with this, but I understand why he ended it the way he did because, and we'll get to it, the song that he plays last is like one of his most famous songs from this period and of all time. So it's probably like play your hit last. It seemed right. like that was the logic. Let's move on to Desolation Row. Oh, wow. Another one of the greatest songs of all time <laughs> uh, in this set. Again, I don't want to sound like a broken record of superlatives. So I'll just focus on there's a part during the, um, I believe it's the first harmonica solo where he does this crazy thing with the guitar where he's doing the strumming thing where it's very syncopated and and jagged and it made me think about again and you said this earlier how this set is confrontational in its own kind of way and the thing that he's doing with the guitar it almost made me think of us sort of like him jamming on this song a little bit because he's jamming on the harmonica solos obviously but then what he's doing with the guitar there is almost like a little kind of almost jammy flourish (laughs) do you know what i'm talking about yeah absolutely
Yeah, it's funny you brought up the audience member's comments about how he, he wasn't keeping a consistent tempo or something like that uh, through some of the songs, and the, the, the guy didn't like that. I think it's amazing. His whole... He is such a good performer by this point, solo, that it's... It, I think it's kind of remarkable that he would choose to play with a band uh, in some ways because he had developed this sound, you know, so perfectly that he could accompany himself, I guess, in this way where like there's a lot of songs in this acoustic set where he will like sing the verses, he'll 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 sing lines slightly delayed or he'll like slow one verse one line down and then speed up the next to keep up. Like things you couldn't do with a band because you have to like match the rest of the musicians. But he does this in Desolation Row, he'll do it in Tambourine Man where he kind of like the tempo kind of wavers back and forth as he sings over it or plays harmonica over it and it's it's so good and he's like so good at playing solo at this point and dylan has always even to this day been a person who i think is kind of a difficult band leader because he knows what he wants in terms of the sound but he's not very good at communicating it to his band you hear a lot of stories about him rehearsing bands even bands he's played with for a long time to, to kind of get at what he has in his head. So one thing that's cool about the acoustic set is that he can do it all himself. So these interpretations of these songs are like entirely his own and he doesn't have to teach it to somebody else. And so something like Desolation Row at, at this point when it's raw and new, just to hear how he's already toying with it in this way is really cool. Because that's one of the great things about Dylan is that he never leaves a song alone too. He's always tweaking it so you can you can hear it here already even though it's less than a year old at this point just think of like like how many people can play by themselves like multiple songs not just like one song or two songs where you're slowing everything down and you're going to do your little acoustic mini set in the middle of the concert but like do an entire set where you're just by yourself where it's not boring right you know there's not that many people that can do that i mean neil young can do that bob dylan can do that but like a lot of other like great artists, you don't want to hear more than like two or three songs of them playing by themselves because there's just not a lot of colors that you can bring in when it's just you and an acoustic guitar. But Bob Dylan can do it. And I think that is easy to take for granted, you know, <laughs> like, because I think it's really hard to pull that off mm-hmm. and not just hold people's attention, but to do all these other things in the songs where he's playing these really long, complicated songs and he's doing quirky things with them but he's holding your emotional attention like you're moved by what he's doing and you're surprised by what he's doing i don't know man bob dylan in 1966 (laughs) what else can you fucking say man it's just jesus christ it's amazing and this is another one where the the crowd is like totally into it they love it they're here for Desolation Row. Oh, let's let's pat him on the back. Let's pat him on the back for enjoying this brilliant music. Well, I mean, but that's it's the same people that are going to be booing. You know, an hour later are yeah, this, like rapturous about Desolation Row. So the, it's funny how dumb. quick it turns, right? Like uh, the the dummies, <laughs> the dummies going to be booing. They don't deserve this. Just like you said earlier, the dropping of, of Visions of Johanna, unreleased song. Just sit on your hands. <laughs> or leave. Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. You've already had a... You're playing with house money after that. Yeah. It's like, man, we haven't even gone to the electric set yet. Right. I'm already angry about it. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to... We're going to... We're going to... It's like we're going to have our own catharsis paralleling the catharsis of the music, I think. But let's get to this acoustic set. We're going to Just Like a Woman 
oh wow another one of the greatest songs of all time yeah i mean this is one and i'll i'm gonna put on my helmet and brace myself this is probably my this is my bathroom break for the acoustic set and probably for the whole Your show. bathroom whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> You're, you're literally going to bathroom break this? Well, and so th- this is why. I, I, I don't dislike Just what? Like a Woman. But I do think this is the one song in this whole set, the whole show, where the studio version is superior to the live version. Everything else on here, like this is like the definitive version of that song for me, for Bob Dylan. But Just Like a Woman on Blonde on Blonde has this like great, relaxed, like lush feel to it. This very like Nashville-y sound. And like, I, 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 it doesn't get to me as much in the solo acoustic version, I gotta say. See, okay, I mean, the thing with Bob Dylan songs is that many of them have no single definitive version okay. because, like you said, he's changing it all the time. <laughs> sure. So it's hard to say that. I agree, the Blonde on Blonde version is is great. Just like I think the Blonde on Blonde Visions of Johanna is great. Like right. all the Blonde on Blonde songs are great on the album, too. The thing I love about this live version is the thing with Just Like a Woman is that if you just look at the lyrics on the page, it's very easy to dismiss this as a cruel, even condescending song. And that was something that was, there was definitely a mean streak running through Bob Dylan's songs at this, at, at this juncture. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about another song later that you and I disagree about a little bit where that is also true of, but I think where the nuance comes in is his vocal delivery and how he can sing something like, you know, she breaks like a little girl, a line that on its face might be kind of like, oh man, what, what what is that all about? He <laughs> sings it with such tenderness and such fragility and such hurt that it manages to convey like a range of emotions all at the same time where there's anger there, but there's also love and there's also jealousy and there's also, again, tenderness and all these things because Dylan himself was so fragile at this point. I think he brings that out. He brings that into the song that makes it very moving to me. So I agree with you that the Blunt on Blunt version is masterful. And I love the arrangement on the record. But I don't know. This is beautiful, too. And again, he's playing a song that these people don't know. They've, they've never heard this song. But it's another future classic that these imbeciles are being exposed to. Uh, and, you know, how lucky for them. And hopefully they appreciated it at this juncture before they're going to go off a cliff in the second set. Sure. I imagine most of the people at this show later on were like, oh yeah, I wasn't booing. I, I, I could see the genius at the time. I we was... hear you though. Right. We can exactly. hear you. Yeah. You can't deny it. <laughs> Let's go into, oh, another one of the greatest songs of all time, Mr. Tambourine Man uh, at the end. And man, is this like the craziest harmonica song? Well, yeah. I mean, this is the ultimate of the ultimate platonic ideal of what we're talking about with bob just playing fuck you harmonica like (laughs) playing harmonica like he's waving his middle finger at the audience (laughs) and like daring them to uh to boo mr tambourine man it's funny because like so there's this complicated tangled history between like the birds and dylan and was dylan inspired to go electric by the birds you know, electrifying Mr. Tambourine Man and it being a hit, which I don't think is true at all. I think Roger McGuinn says that sometimes, but I don't believe that for a second. But you listen to like the elect the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man now, and it sounds kind of, especially in comparison to this version, it sounds really lame to me. Like it sounds so like light and fluffy. And then this Mr. Tambourine Man is just like, like you said, it's like a, it's already like the first punk rock show, even before they get to the electric, because it is just, you know, it's sung with a snarl. Every harmonica solo is so in your face. 
and so off key and so long and so long yeah and just like challenging people to like stick with it it's great i mean it's 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 awesome it's beautiful i'll just say that <laughs> you know it is yeah the, and these harmonica solos could have been twice as long as they already are on this record and i would have been totally into it like you and i have conversations about bob dylan and neil young i feel like you lean a little bit more towards neil young i lean a little bit more towards bob we both we love them both we both love bob and neil you know what what neil can do with his guitar that's what bob does with his harmonica yeah you know it's like neil young has a totally distinct guitar tone where he can play things that sound ugly maybe on paper you would think it would sound ugly just sustaining a note forever and it's like the most glorious sound to me like i can i can listen to neil young play guitar solos forever him soloing over Crazy Horse is like the best to me. And Bob Dylan wailing on harmonica and Mr. Tambourine Man. <laughs> Give me an hour of that. Yeah. I'll be into it. Yeah. No, it's a great comparison because it's not like technically proficient at all. I mean, and, and Dylan can play technically proficient harmonica if you wanted to. This is, this is a choice to play tensionally noisy rather than playing something, you know, more traditionally beautiful over Mr. Tambourine Man. So, great comparison. It's, it gives oh, me the same vibe. Laughing, well. spinning, swinging madly across the sun. It's not aimed at anyone. It's just escaping on the run. And before the sky, there are no fences facing. And if you hear vague traces of skipping reels of rhyme To your tambourine in time It's just a ragged clown behind I wouldn't pay it any man Besides, it's just a shadow you're seeing that he's chasing I, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me I'm not sleepy and there's no place I'm going to Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song to me In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you Folks, I'm stretching my arms here, <laughs> getting ready. We're going over to disc two, the electric side. You know, we talked about all the new songs, new at the time of this concert that are on the first disc. We start off the second disc with a song that was never recorded. And I was reading about how this song wasn't even copyrighted until five years later. Hmm. And, and the lyrics were 
transcribed from bootleg tapes from this tour <laughs> because they played this song. It was the traditional set opener of the electric set. I think starting in like February or March or so. It was like in 66. They didn't play it in 65. Tombstone Blues would kick off the set in 65. But they play Tell Me Mama. And uh, man, I'm just going to say, you hear that guitar strumming at the beginning. And you hear like some stomping. And then all of a sudden, Mickey Jones hits the snare. (laughs) You hear Garth Hudson's uh, organ. Robbie Robertson is like, just just slaying on guitar and it's like jesus christ here we go we're yeah. on a rocket ship right what's better than that what's better than that what's a better opener than that there's nothing better than that <laughs> i'm not gonna You're disagree having... i can't disagree the back of your head is blown off yeah immediately yeah um you know particularly since you know so some people have said they were booing because the sound was bad I mean that was a like a complaint at Newport too, but also on this tour. I don't I don't know if the sound was bad or not. It certainly sounds great on the soundboard recording. Uh, I don't know what it sounds like in the room. Can you imagine <laughs> like the acoustic set being you know confrontational but still quiet and acoustic and what you would expect, just one person, and then you know having them come out and just playing you know going zero to sixty right away, just being as loud as they possibly can right off the bat. I mean, right there, it's like you're either you're with us or against us, which is probably what inspires a lot of the heckling, I guess. But uh, yeah, you either you either like it or you don't like there's there's no middle ground. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's so fast. And you know, you're just flying by the seat of your pants. And it's a song that like, I don't know if this is like a great song, but it's a great vehicle for this band to just rip the place to shreds right at the beginning of the set yeah it's it's a tone setter big time for what's coming next right and we go from there into i don't believe you which is a song from like another side of bob dylan so now he's like already rearranging a song that people know is like an acoustic ditty right and so i think I'm pretty sure I have not found a version where he doesn't say this at the start. Like, I'm pretty sure this was some scripted banter on Bob's part, but he always does the, it used to go like that, but now it goes like this. <laughs> Just to like rub it into people. Yeah, this is not the old uh, folky Bob Dylan that you used to love. This is a whole new thing, which is another thing that I think really pissed people off. It would have Maybe it would have been fine if he had just played all the bringing it all back home and Highway 61 stuff that was electric on the record. But instead, about half this set is very old recorded material that he has rearranged and played electric. So it's like songs that people love going in. The Folkies really loved. And they're hearing it in this like new aggressive format and not liking it. Well, and one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that, and I think it was just on the for the electric set, they would unfurl like a huge ass American flag <laughs> yeah. behind the band. And it's like when they're in Europe. I know, pretty sure they did that in Manchester... Definitely in Paris. I'm not sure how many other shows they did, but the Paris footage has the enormous American flag, which again, punk rock. Like he's just like, yeah. we're Americans, which is funny since his band is Canadian other than Mickey Jones, but yeah, it works. I mean, I think the idea in his mind on some level was, you know, there was so much attention on British bands at that time, mm-hmm. the British invasion, and Dylan was trying to say, well, you took American music and you brought it back to us. So now I am bringing 
this American music to you. There's also, again, like a fuck you energy to that because Absolutely. Europeans always look down on America anyway, but this is Vietnam War going on. Feelings about America are not very good at this point. So it's like Dylan is now going to drape himself in the American flag after being a critic of America <laughs> for a while, which is, again, total Bob Dylan move. Yeah. Just he's, he's zigging when they expect him to zag, right? Exactly. This is a song, like, when you, and you can see them forming this song in No Direction Home and also in Eat the Document. Dylan has a guitar around his neck, but he's not playing it, really. I think this is Robbie. Again, God damn it, Robbie Robertson on this song. Everything we were saying before, beautiful guitar playing, not overplaying at all, but making his presence felt. And then you have Dylan blowing his head off on the harmonica, which is he playing? Like what, what notes are he, is he playing here? <laughs> I, it, it just sounds like it's purely to make noise. Yeah. Has somebody notated uh, the harmonica solos of Live 66? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like, this is iconic Robbie Robertson right here. This is like his whole sound in one song that like woozy chords that go back and forth. And then the little like plucked fills at the end of every line. Like it's, it's so good. Part of what like the, the thing with the band being so loud too is that I think it forces Dylan to sing louder. And so he's doing this like howl <laughs> that you get in pretty much every song of this set, but it just like builds and builds and builds from song to song. And that too is so great. And I don't know if that is a technical side effect of he had to sing that loud to even like make himself heard over the loudness of the band behind him. But yeah, I don't believe you is when you really start to get the, the famous Dylan howl uh, through throughout this set. Yeah, I mean, you listen to some of the shows from around this time and he's like like literally screaming yeah on this song and i feel like on this show it's like the perfect howl because right. some of them it's like uh it's a little too much but this is perfect it's like he's screaming on key mm. here or or key-ish anyway it's like, <laughs> close enough it's perfect it, <laughs> yeah it, it's perfect so we go from there into baby let me follow you down which is a song from his first record i mean we're going again deep into the catalog and this is where the crowd starts getting a little frisky right between songs they're doing the rhythmic clapping. Yep. Which is really rhythmic funny to clapping. me that that was like considered like a sign of disrespect. <laughs> that they right. Clap in rhythm. I think like if that happened in a concert today, people would be like, yeah, this is like a cool thing. They love us. But it is funny because it like really throws off the band too, I think, because they're trying to like, he's trying to count off the song, but the crowd is clapping in a different tempo than he wants to start. So it's actually like a pretty effective heckle if that's really what they were intending i don't know well yeah because they start playing and then they the imbeciles in the crowd start doing the slow motion clap <laughs> and then they start again and there's this magical moment like where rick danko comes in with the bass yeah and like you can't hear the crowd anymore <laughs> like the band locks in at that point right and they just they just obliterate the audience and it's like fuck yeah yeah and, and this is a great rick danko song like oh. the bass on here i think is so killer absolutely yeah, I mean, it's like all the things, all the elements that are so great about the band that wouldn't really be heard, I guess, by most people until Big Pink comes out two years later, 68? Yeah, 68. You can hear like the genesis of all those things. Because like Robbie Robertson's style, as we talked about, is already like mature. And then Danko has a, an immediately identifiable bass style, which isn't heard throughout this set. But certainly like the start of Baby Let Me Follow You Down, you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's Rick Danko playing the bass right there. Uh, and he just like rumbles in and takes over. Uh, and Mickey Jones is really great on this too. This is like the most Levon Helm like song for Mickey Jones, I think. Like it's got a little bit more like of a 
funky flavor to it that Levon would play. And you can hear Levon play it in The Last Waltz because they dusted it off for The Last Waltz as sort of a throwback, I think, to this tour. Shout out to the Garth Hudson, oh, who's yeah. great on this song. And I mean, really, in terms of like the sonic qualities of the Hawks on this show, it is like Robbie's guitar, mm-hmm. Garth's organ, and Mickey Jones's drums are like really the most prominent. Right. But we'll get more into that like later in the set. I think there's some great Garth Hudson moments coming up. But let's go to just like Tom Thumb Blues. Jesus fucking Christ, man. <laughs> Robbie Robertson on this song. Robbie Robertson on this song, man. It's like, you know, the riff at the beginning and throughout, it's so majestic on this song. And I have to give a shout out to a show a couple days before this. They played in Liverpool on May 14th. And that version of Just Like Tom Thumb Blues was released as the B-side to I Want You, which was really like the first taste that people had of this tour and that was really the kind of the beginning of the legend of like this era of dylan and the hawks and that version is like even like more violent than this one on, on the manchester show the be- like the middle part like the the sort of guitar solo part so noisy it's so like velvet underground almost just brilliant but yeah Jesus fucking Christ, Robbie <laughs> Robertson. I guess gotta say it again. Just amazing on this song. When I went back and listened to the studio version of Tom Thumb today, it like reminded me how chill the like record version of this song is. It's got like a very laid back vibe to it in the studio, and then like a lot of songs on this set, it just gets turned into an angry rant <laughs> almost. <laughs> like, and it really feels the as this set goes on, it feels more and more like Dylan is you know yelling at the audience. But there's an elegance to it, right? Though. Of course, an, yeah. You know, like especially like the the band, and I gotta say, Garth Hudson again. Yeah, His interplay with Robbie, I think, is so good. Yeah, there's like a violent aggression to it. But again, like it's delivered like with such gracefulness at right. the same time and elegance. Because if it was just bludgeoning, I don't think that it would be as well regarded as it is, as it is, as, as just like a, as, as music. I mean, right. the drama of it is one thing, but it holds up because they know what they're doing at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. they've got a thing going on that's, like, totally magical. Right. But I I just like that we were talking about earlier, like, all these lines that would maybe not pop out in other contexts have extra loads of meaning here. Like, the I'm going back to New York City, I do believe I've had enough end to this song is such a triumphant line and such, like, a kiss-off. It's so drawn out, too. He just draws it out. 
I mean, he is like, he knows exactly what he's doing <laughs> and just like lays into it thick. It works so well. But you're right. I mean, Garth Hudson is the secret ingredient of the band. And I don't think that's a hot take at all. Like it always has been because he plays the organ like nobody else does. And so even though it has this sort of garagey blues rock thing that a lot of bands like the Grateful Dead were doing in 1966, he is playing it in such a different way that it just adds this extra texture to the whole sound that you weren't going to get from any other anonymous backing band that Dylan could have chose to play on this tour. Yeah, I mean, Garth Hudson could give you that vibe of like that great mid-60s just down and dirty rock sound but he played like he was in an orchestra right you know like again there's just like a majesty to it that no other organist has and you know look garth hudson is there anyone close in terms of organists in rock history who challenges him for being the to me he's clearly the best organist ever in like rock history yeah. I don't think there's anyone close to him. That doesn't seem like a, a, a stretch at all to say that. There's Garth Hudson, and I don't know who's number two after him. <laughs> doesn't really matter to me. Right, yeah. Garth Hudson's number one. Uh, he's the man. He's also like, you know, I talked about this set not being very psychedelic, but he is the one that most points to, I think, the psychedelic future. Like, he's everything at once. Like, he's thrown back to, like, the organ in, like, classic blues. He has, as you say, this almost, like, churchy gospel orchestrated feel to his organ, and his also by far the most like sort of swirly psychedelic cosmic part of this sound too it's amazing that he can do all those things at once but he does yeah i mean because al cooper obviously played on like a rolling stone and right. that organ sound is so iconic but i mean what garth hudson could do in comparison to that i mean there is no comparison i mean it's, he's just so much more versatile yeah i think where he can conjure so many things simultaneously where, like you said, there's a psychedelic thing there. There's a blues thing there. There's like a carnival-esque thing going on. Yeah. It's so unique. It just brings so much to these songs. The only knock on him is that like he doesn't have the beard yet and he looks really weird. <laughs> like, I no beard like Garth Hudson does not work for me. <laughs> he actually looks kind of handsome I, at this he time. He does, I, I, but it's not It's not right. He needs to look like uh, like a mountain hermit that came down and played organ. <laughs> when you watch the footage, like, the guys in the band are, like, they're wearing suits. They're also fresh-faced and, yeah, and young. That's one thing that blew me away about watching. Like, you, you see a little bit more of Robbie and Eat the Document. He's not, like, the last waltz Robbie where he's, you know, got the gold guitar and like the open shirt and like the perfect <laughs> hair he's just like standing pretty still and playing these like blazing leads i mean he's being a side man right he knows it's like i'm not the star he's basically so... dressed like bob too he's like wearing the sunglasses he's got this great right. suit that looks kind of like beetlejuice like he is uh he's coming into his own but he's not he's quite... a bad man he's not full-on uh big head robbie yet you know what though again people can rip on robbie i've taken shots at robbie he's arrogant but you know what you kind of earn the right to be arrogant as far as i'm concerned it's, he's not just like some schlub <laughs> you know he's done a lot of good shit man so like you know okay you're an arrogant guy but uh, you're also the best guitar player bob dylan ever had you made some pretty awesome albums okay i guess you're justified in being arrogant you know that's fine um leopard skin pillbox hat this is the controversial track <laughs> for, this side. for the two of us at least yeah this is like where Bob, this is where Rob's uh, hatred of blues rock comes to the fore. Because you're not really into this song, right? No, it's it's fine. And actually, this is another one. I mean, like like I said, everything on here is I 
prefer to the studio version almost other than just like a woman it's just too like traditional blues for me so much of this set is taking blues obviously and doing something new with it like combining it with rock turning it into like a new like vision of like late 60s like hard rock with blues influence it's just like leopard skin pillbox hat is like the worst version of that to me because it's just like the chunk 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 that like a million bands have done and a million bands will do and the lyrics they're like funny the first time you hear them it's one of those songs where it's like oh this is clever and then every time you hear it after that you're like all right it's not that clever and it is kind of like the ugly side of bob writing a lot of borderline misogynist material at this time where a lot of other songs the poetry of the song kind of overwhelms the fact that it's a little bit questionable uh leopard skin pillbox hat just seems mean to me i don't know who it's about but it just seems like kind of a rude song so even though this version kind of goes a little harder than the studio version or a lot of the other versions in 66 and like i'm not saying i don't enjoy it it's just like the weak point of the set i think so i'm going to begin by making a small concession to the points you just made i will concede that this is probably like the weakest song in the set Mm -hmm. that's where my concessions end (laughs) because this is one of the great this is the greatest set of all time so to say that it's the weakest part of this set is like saying what, like, uh, it's like saying it's the weakest part of the 66 Bob Dylan set. There's no other comparison. This is like the greatest thing in the world to me. So you mentioned like a lot of people do that blues shuffle. They're not Bob Dylan and the Hawks. (laughs) It's not Rick Danko playing the bass line. It's not Robbie Robertson playing just another sick goddamn guitar solo. Really like a moment like where he really gets to show off. He really gets to show off in this song probably more than he does throughout. Like for the most part, he's pretty restrained, but this is where he really gets to cut loose, I think in a pretty thrilling way. This is another song like where people are, are, are bitching in the audience. You can hear them at the start of the song and then they slam in and they obliterate the audience. I mean, that's a trick that they do throughout this set. <laughs> it always thrills me. To hear them just crash in and drown out the booing and the whining and all that crap. There's also that great moment at the end of this song, like where people are really starting to get upset, and Dylan is doing that, like, not like, if he only wouldn't clap so hard. Yeah. Like he gets, like he gets them to like shut up, and then he's like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> shut the fuck up, you imbeciles. Yeah. We're blowing your minds here you cretins yeah Uh, that's a great moment yeah i love that moment i mean i do like that i like everything you said but it's like you know so baby let me follow you down is also an old it's an actual old blues song dylan thought it was an eric von schmidt song but it's actually a reverend gary davis song reverend gary davis of course wrote samson and delilah and um death don't have no mercy so another dead link but you know the their interpretation of the blues and baby let me follow you down is way more compelling to me than leopard skin pillbox hat which is just to me is like a going through the motions blues rock song in a lot of ways oh don't even say if they, the going even through if the they play it really thing. well it's just not like uh, there's no going through the motions in this set man they're just not like Come modernizing on. in any way other than the lyrics i guess the lyrics the lyrics but are modernizing but i don't it. really like the there's lyrics no, there's no well okay but then don't say they're not modernizing it just say you don't like the lyrics they the lyrics are totally unlike blues lyrics especially like in you know the mid 60s there's no there's 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 no blues song called leopard skin pillbox hat i mean this this was Dylan taking a traditional song form right and 
bringing it into the modern world, which is what he did throughout his career. Yeah. So I just wish he updated the music as well and not just the lyrics. But it's I'm a blues saying. song. You know, you just don't like the blues, you know? like I don't like this <laughs> slavish tradition of the blues. It's, I like the blues influencing something else. Let's move on. <laughs> if, you, if, you hear, if you listen to this version and you feel like he's, they're just slavishly playing like bar band blues, then I, you know. <laughs> no, that's not what's happening here at all. Let's move on to uh, One Too Many Mornings. You know, I've been pretty calm so far. I've been pretty nice to the <laughs> oh, audience, sure. I yes. think. Yeah, reasonable. This this is where I'm going to get angry. <laughs> I'm going I'm to get pretty angry here. Yeah. Because this is the song that apparently set off the guy who yelled Judas. And right. apparently there's like, I've heard it's Keith Butler was the one who yelled Judas. And apparently he's in Eat the Document. There's a scene in the middle of the movie where there's this crazy lunatic that you know that Bobby Newworth was interviewing people like in the audience and there's this guy saying like oh he's trying to get shot like it's bloody awful he says like garbage like that and apparently that's Keith Butler okay and the thing that pissed him off was something you mentioned earlier about how Dylan was you know rearranging his earlier acoustic songs and making them electric and like one too many mornings was apparently the song that like really upset this guy and led to the Judas moment. This beautiful, mind-blowing version (laughs) that this imbecile, I'm going to say imbecile again, take a drink for all the times I say imbecile in this episode. This moron can't appreciate. This is the song that made me cry when I was on shrooms, by the way. I was bawling my eyes out to this song in particular. The harmony vocal, which I think is just Rick Danko. Like When you watch Eat the Document, you see them playing it i don't know if richard manuel was also singing like off camera but i think it's just danko right because he has to he actually comes up and uses dylan's mic like they don't even have a right second mic for danko it's uh danko and dylan singing the behind part together which is oh my god it's so good yeah i mean it's so good this song also has a really good mix like you can hear richard manuel's piano Mm -hmm. on this song really clearly the instrumental passage in the middle of the song it starts at about a minute 58 dylan says oh and then they go into this instrumental thing i think that's the most gorgeous music i think of, of this whole set for me just unbelievable so the harmony vocal in that section and then you have this moron pissing his pants in the audience because it's not the acoustic version i right. mean come on it's not the version he expected Exactly. So it's it's setting the stage for what's going to happen at the end of this set, right? With with this song, it's just hilarious to me that this is what made him mad, which, which to me is like so beautiful. Like I can't even. It triggered him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This this mind blowing music that he couldn't understand. Yeah, I mean the, the the backing vocals thing is interesting to me because like one of the great things about the band is that they had you know three different incredible vocalists and of course one of them is not there it's levon helm who is working on an oil rig in texas and still gallivanting across europe but yeah it's really interesting to me that dylan would not use backing vocalists you know any more than you know essentially one word in the entire set and it sounds so good but maybe it sounds so good because he uses it so judiciously that there's not it, it really pops because somebody else is singing at this moment it's a really awesome version and it, it, it is cool to hear richard manuel who is a little bit he's probably the one that's the hardest to pick out in the mix and richard manuel is maybe my favorite member of the band just because i think he's such a tragic figure in a lot of ways uh, certainly by the time of last waltz but uh like i said the interplay between 
Garth Hudson playing organ and Richard Manuel playing piano at the same time in the band and in the Hawks for this set is really one of the most unique and magical things about this band. So... starting to get real now it's starting to get intense <laughs> yeah here and uh you know like i said i've been calm until now i haven't called anyone out but i'm starting to feel the tension of this set i think and because we're getting into ballad of a thin man and uh i kind of feel that this might be the best dylan vocal of the show mm-hmm. and you mentioned how you felt like just like a woman was better on the record this live version, I think, destroys the version on Highway 61 Revisited. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the Highway 61 Revisited version, like, I love that album, but, like, the studio version I always felt like was a little lumbering. Yeah. And this is so razor-focused and full of hatred. Yeah. <laughs> and anger. And you also have the brilliant Garth Hudson organ playing off of Bob's, because Bob's playing piano here. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it's like, a, it's an exorcism, this song. Right. I mean, I think Like a Rolling Stone gets all the hype for being the big cathartic moment of this set. And it is in a lot of ways, but I almost feel like Ballad of a Thin Man is even more where Bob just gets to like let it all out (laughs) on the crowd. Uh, It's just so venomous how he sings this entire song. Again, it's another line that maybe... Dylan didn't know what he was writing when he wrote the song, but the, you know, something's happening here and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones line? He can sing that just dripping with poison (laughs) every time at the audience. And it works so well. I think it actually, like the footage of this song really brings it out too. Like hearing it on the record is great, but seeing it in No Direction Home or seeing it eat eat the document, I think because Bob was not at the front of the stage and not looking at the audience, he could kind of like look sideways, makes it even more like angry in a lot of ways. The performance of him, there's just a great long shot in No Direction Home of like right next on the piano bench, shooting right at Bob with the lights in the background is spine chilling <laughs> just thinking yeah. about it uh and how like powerful it is uh in that in that context just the drama of this moment even with all of the mythologizing and we like we've said earlier like everyone knows this story every time i hear this record i get sucked into it and i i think it's because of how he was able to take that negative energy and just pour it into the performances and it's so 
impassioned and and yet again like the the playing is so great these dudes are professionals you know, and we mentioned that Dead Show, they play on the on, on the 19th of, of May, a few days after this. That is a really charming show, but like the dead weren't professionals yet. It, and that's the difference. Like they were boys, but these are like men coming out for blood, you know, and it's just unbelievable, man. And this is all building up to the last song, which is like a Rolling Stone, of course. And it's preceded by this moment that you can't hear on streaming platforms, apparently. But uh, yeah, someone yells out Judas at Bob Dylan. And uh, Bob is not happy about it. And Bob, it's amazing because Bob was still angry about this like years after the fact. Yeah, I want to read this quote. Because I love that, what is this, 50 years later, uh, he's still mad about it. And this is like... uh, Apparently, an interview around the time that Tempest came out in 2012. This is this is, this is in Rolling Stone, right? With Michael Gilmore. This whole interview is amazing, by the way. Like right. Dylan was, is very ornery in this interview, <laughs> and this is like towards the end of the interview. Okay, this this line, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. And so, like they were talking about pla- like plagiarizing lines uh, for for Tempest. This is something that comes up a lot with Dylan, where he like uses lines from other songs or pieces of literature and doesn't, I guess, annotate them properly for some people. But he responds to that, diverts it into the Judas thing by saying, wussies and pussies complain about that stuff. It's an old thing. It's part of the tradition. It goes way back. These are the same people that tried to pin the name Judas on me. Judas, the most hated name in human history. (laughs) If you think you've been called a bad name, try to work your way out from under that. Yeah, and for what? For playing an electric guitar? As if that is in some kind of way equitable to betraying our Lord and delivering him up to be crucified. All those evil motherfuckers can rot in hell. <laughs> so, I love yes. it. I love that I'm Dylan appla- is still mad I'm about applauding. this. <laughs> I'm applauding that. And, and Bob, if I could add my own comment, imbeciles. <laughs> imbeciles, Bob. Fucking imbeciles. But he has the perfect retort in the moment, which is just to, to say, I don't I don't believe you, you're a liar, and turn around and say, play fucking loud. Doesn't get any better than that. Jones, I mean, if, if he had done nothing else in his entire life, hitting the snare drum as hard as he hits it right there is the greatest. I mean, that's like the greatest snare drum hit in rock history right there. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning and then just all the all the drum rolls like during the like throughout the song. I mean, this song just builds and builds and builds. Right. And Bob is like dragging out, you know, verses like longer and longer. <laughs> And and Garth Hudson is like 
it sounds like he's playing super hard on the organ and yeah i mean they're just trying they're like a, a tank like firing into the audience yeah basically on this song and it just sounds like every time like mickey jones does those drum rolls it's like another shot of the cannon into the crowd it's breathtaking i mean come on you know again it's easy to be cynical about this kind of stuff and be like oh whatever this has been so overblown blah 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 no it's not yeah it's not overblown this is actually one of those like rock mythology moments that delivers yeah like it delivers on the hype it fucking is awesome yeah hearing bob dylan destroy the imbeciles (laughs) which he does bob dylan won Bob Dylan and the Hawks won Imbecile Zero at yep. the end of this, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, he lives up to it. The, the mythology of the moment, it, it it never fails. And I mean, I can't even go back and listen to like the studio version of Like a Rolling Stone after this one. Like this is this is the version of Like a Rolling Stone that you got to hear. And that the howling that we talked about earlier in the set is just like at its maximum by the end of this song. Haunt it, babe! <laughs> it's so good. Um yeah, it's incredible. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's it's fortuitous in a way that this became the iconic 66 show because it comes at a point in the tour where I think their anger is at a maximum and the exhaustion hasn't totally overwhelmed it. Because, like I said, I have the, the real Royal Albert Hall concert, which just doesn't hit as hard, even though it's the exact same set list. It has the exact same dynamic where the crowd is like booing and doing rhythmic clapping, but it doesn't quite have the same power. And because I think it's it's the last two shows of the tour and he is just like exhausted and ready to get it over with and go home. So it doesn't quite have this like peak confrontational energy that you get from the Manchester show. So it's one of those, I guess, sort of magical moments where the most famous show of the tour just happened to be caught. Captured in very good sound, disseminated through illegal channels for many decades before it was officially released. Yeah, it's it's just great to be able to hear this iconic moments and not just read about it. And I think it all peaked finally when we talked about it on our podcast. I think this was the culmination, <laughs> you know, 55 years later of uh, Dylan and the Hawks at Manchester Free Trade Hall. So I'm glad that we were able to do that. I'm glad we were able to... Bring it all back home, if you will, with this concert. Yeah, it's great. And it's incredible that it's 55 years old and it still sounds so dramatic and fresh. Again, if you haven't heard this record before and uh, you can find your way to hear it with the banter and the crowd interactions in between, like you owe it to yourself to hear it because it's it's a masterpiece. Well, I hope you're all okay out there. I know a lot of superlatives in this episode, a lot of hyperbole. I think it was justified, but you know, I think we'll get back. Well, I don't know how critical we're going to be in our next episode because we're talking about Dick's Picks 23. This is uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, Baltimore Civic Center, 9-17-72. We've already talked about one show from September of 72, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. This show's amazing too. So might be superlative city again in our next episode. <laughs> Going from Dylan 66 to the Grateful Dead 72. I mean, come on. Nothing but the the choice cuts on this podcast. Nothing but the choice cuts, man. I mean, we're going to have to clear the palate at some point. (laughs) Do we have another uh, 80s or 90s show coming up? When when is that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not Not, this season? Not anytime soon. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I don't know. I think we're going to have to, uh, I mean, we're either going to get jaded and, and, and piss on like, 
half hour dark star from 72 <laughs> or uh we'll uh you know just become totally milk toast and love everything because yep. we just keep getting served choice cuts the greatest I mean, rock music except, of all time yeah exactly which you know hey who are we to complain? Yeah. I mean, we're these are the salad days for us. So uh, thank you so much for listening to uh, our Curveball episode. Uh, we'll be back talking about the dead in our next episode, and I can't wait to get into it. Play fucking loud, everybody. Yeah. Have a good night. God save the queen. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The The Corner Corner of Gray Street. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020 20-d.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.